Brand new Mac and know it's looking clean. It's the after party, live from the mountains. Wanna cop some, shouldn't be a doubt about it. Looking for great reviews, then you found it. Connecting with the fans, hope you get a lot out of it. Yeah. Welcome to the other party, I divide. Well, you know we get a little come alive. And you know we got a light, so we gon' shine. And we talking to the fans, it's the time, yeah. Hey, it's Chris. And as promised, welcome to a special edition of the podcast, which is actually inspired by a couple other pretty famous YouTubers who recently took to their own podcast to share a little bit about their worldviews, both past and present. And because I actually get asked quite frequently about my own worldview from people who watch my content or listen to my content, I thought, you know what? I'm going to follow their lead. I'm just gonna go ahead and talk about my own worldview and sort of share my own personal account and my process and my story. One thing I'll tell you right off the bat though is that I've always personally felt that people should be encouraged to sincerely ask the tough questions in life because, and this is my thing, the truth is never gonna mind. It's the truth. But look, if any of this makes you uneasy or just doesn't sound like your kind of thing or maybe just sounds super boring or you're just not interested for whatever reason, please, please, please feel free to skip this episode and just circle back next week when we get back to business as usual. You're definitely not going to hurt my feelings. Otherwise, if you do want to stick around, then cool, because hopefully this should be at least fairly interesting, if nothing else. But I mean, yeah, people always want to know if I'm a Christian. And really, half the time, people just make an assumption that I am and either give me a digital pat on the back or just kind of mock and deride and make fun. So today, I'm just going to talk openly and honestly about my worldview and particularly how I arrived where I have so that people don't have to guess or make those assumptions any longer. (laughs) And I'm not even going to make you wait. I'm just going to tell you right now. Yeah. I'm a Christian, although maybe not your typical Christian. Whatever your mental conception of a Christian is, I doubt I'm going to neatly fit into that. For instance, no, I am not a young earth creationist. My hope is that just by the end of this episode, you'll understand why I think that Christianity is a rational and intellectually defensible worldview, even though some people in the world right now would tell you the exact opposite. Although, by no means am I alone in my thinking. One thing I'm sure of, though, is that I'll probably get all kinds of reactions to this special episode, both negative and positive. But I do hope that in the free marketplace of ideas, you'll at least give me a seat at the table. Because even if you and I do end up disagreeing on certain things, there's no reason why we should be disagreeable. I really hope that just as fellow humans, we can at least wind up in a place of unity, you and I, even if we don't end up in a place of uniformity. I think that if we take a little time away from our technology, which sometimes I feel like distracts us into oblivion, then I think a great place for us to connect could be our shared sense of curiosity and wonder as we find ourselves in the midst of this insanely fascinating and gigantically expansive universe. Now, it just so happens that I've been working on this special podcast episode while the world is suffering through this unprecedented coronavirus pandemic. And right now, it's not life as usual by any stretch of the imagination. 
Okay, and I just want to be clear. I'm not making this special episode because of the pandemic. It's just, it took me this long for me to make and release because I thought it was such a good idea. Even so, I mean, people do obviously seem extra worried about the present and the future right now, and rightly so. And just like a lot of YouTubers have been saying, it doesn't seem like the normal topic of my YouTube channel seems all that important right now at this moment. So for just this one episode, I do want to step back from talking about tech to kind of zoom out and talk about the macro, the bigger picture, maybe some things that do seem more important, and to just have a thoughtful discussion on maybe some of life's big questions, you know, like why is there something rather than nothing, and how do we get here, and does life have any meaning, and should I conduct my life in a certain way, and what, if anything, happens after death? These are the big questions, right? And I mean, obviously, these are important things to think about whether or not we're in a pandemic. And of course, a pandemic isn't going to change the answers one way or another. But it's obvious from just a quick glance out your window or even just looking at social media that the pandemic is making people think in ways they normally wouldn't and about things they normally wouldn't, including, I think, these big questions. Uh, you know, I've heard it said, and maybe you have too, that there's no such thing as an atheist on a sinking ship. And I couldn't tell you whether or not that's true. But I do know that personally, I mean, I'd rather go through life with a sense of hope than without one. And I think that sounds a little obvious to say, because who wouldn't? But I mean, there are atheists out there telling people that life is ultimately meaningless. And then you got Christians out there being like, well, if Jesus was who he claimed to be, then Christians do have a real reason to hope. The question is, though, is that hope just a fantasy? Like, if Chris is sitting here telling me he's a Christian, has he lost it? Now, before we jump off in the deep end and start talking about biology and cosmology and physics and philosophy, among other ologies, I just want you to know, I'm not a Christian because my parents crammed Christianity down my throat or because I was never exposed to any other lines of thinking or because I just happened to be born in a certain part of the world. Nah, I'm a Christian because, among other things, I find it to be the most intellectually satisfying worldview. Period. And before we go on, I just want to be crystal clear about one thing. This podcast episode is not about me trying to convert anyone or refute anyone or anything like that. I'm just here to tell you guys how the Chris you know came to believe the way he does. So, here's how this episode is going to go. We're going to do a super deep dive on Darwinian evolution and atheism. Because I think it's just a logical starting place. And also, because there's some fun ideas to explore there. Like some really mind-bending stuff. And then in the second half of the episode, we're going to get into my personal story a little bit. And talk about some of the big objections that sometimes get brought up about Christianity. And why those haven't dissuaded me personally. You know, these are my views. I'm not saying these have to be your views. <laughs> I will say this. I think this is going to be a very long episode. So you might want to grab a comfy seat. You might want to get some snacks and maybe a nitro coffee and just kind of settle in. Also, like I do in the videos, I'm going to put some timestamps down in the description. So if anything starts bogging down for you or you want to skip around a little bit, you can do that. Although, I would say try to stick around for everything, though, because the first half really adds important context for the second half. And plus, if anybody out there is ever going to accuse me of being uninformed, then 
they better at least listen to everything I got to say here, right? Okay, I think this is a long enough intro, so why don't we just get into it? I'd like to start things off with two of the questions that I mentioned earlier. Why is there something rather than nothing, and how did we as humans get here in the first place? Because the way a person deals with those two questions pretty much shapes everything else downstream. So not long ago, I got a comment in one of my videos that said, OMG, he's a creationist. And that was followed by a green sick face emoji. Now, I could have easily just deleted this comment and moved on with life, but instead I struck up a conversation with this person. <laughs> and it didn't take long to discover a couple things. Number one, he was a Darwinist, and he wasn't just skeptical of my perspective or the perspective that he perceived me to be having, but he was pretty cynical where it was clear he was at the point where nothing was going to change his mind. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't help but recall this funny conversation that Phoebe and Ross had on Friends, if anybody out there still remembers that show. And I think it's just worth reading a little piece of it here, although don't worry, I'm not going to try to do any of the voices. So Phoebe says, what is this obsessive need you have to make everyone agree with you? And Ross is like, okay, Phoebe, this is it. In this briefcase, I carry actual scientific facts. A briefcase of facts, if you will. Some of these fossils are over 200 million years old. And then Phoebe says, okay, look, before you even start, I'm not denying evolution, okay? I'm just saying it's one of the possibilities. To which Ross is like, it's the only possibility, Phoebe. And then Phoebe's like, okay, Ross, could you just open your mind like this much, okay? Wasn't there a time when the brightest minds in the world believed that the world was flat? And up until like, what, 50 years ago, you all thought the atom was the smallest thing until you split it open and this like whole mess of crap came out. Now, are you telling me that you're so unbelievably arrogant that you can't admit that there's not a teeny tiny possibility that you could be wrong about this? And then Raz is like, there might be a teeny tiny possibility. Yeah, I'm sure I butchered the delivery. Sorry, friends, fans. But it's funny to me for obvious reasons, mainly because we've all been that closed-minded before. So anyway, the person who left me that comment, OMG, he's a creationist, said they were a biology student and they couldn't tolerate people who didn't believe in, quote, basic science, such as mutations that create new forms of animal life. And then they also recommended that I check out this dude, maybe you heard of him, Richard Dawkins, for more information on why Darwinian evolution was, as Ross might say, the only possibility. Now, obviously, scientists do some very complicated work. But honestly, it's not hard to understand what science is. Here's a nice, simple definition. Science is a systematic enterprise that builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions about the universe. Yeah, that's not hard to understand in the slightest. So in the book Einstein's Relativity and the Quantum Revolution, Modern Physics for Non-Scientists, 2nd Edition, by Professor Richard Wolfson, which, yes, is a real book in my personal collection, I found science described in a really interesting way. Here's how Wolfson puts it after just having mentioned the scientific method. I think the great science, the big science, the science that takes us leaps ahead in our understanding of physical reality is very different. I think that's a creative activity much more akin to art or composition of music or other creative human endeavors than it is to the sort of dry sense people have of science as this sort of dull scientific method kind of thing. Science is a very creative activity. Huh, those are Wolfson's words, not mine, but 
interesting wording there. And yet, here's this biology student who's mocking me for assuming that I believe in a creator for, quote, scientific reasons, nonetheless. Wolfson goes on to say this. You need to be intelligent. You need to be open-minded. But you don't need to know anything about science to understand what I'm about to describe. It doesn't take an Einstein to understand modern physics. It may have taken an Einstein to come up with modern physics. But once the genius of Einstein had done that, all of us can understand what modern physics has to say, and that's my goal. So, to understand basic science and big science, intelligence and creativity are needed. Interesting, given the subject matter. But also, an open mind, which isn't something this particular biology student seemed to be having. Why? Well, maybe, because there's a big difference between science, as has been described here, and scientism. Because science, that's an activity. But scientism, that's a belief system. And it's also one which happens to promote that tired old myth that science and Christianity are opposed to each other. It's like, you can do a quick Google search, and you'll see real fast that some of the most important scientists in history who would absolutely be classified as foundational to modern science were believers in God. I'm talking about guys like Copernicus, Francis Bacon, Johannes Kepler, Galileo, Isaac Newton, and the list goes on. And there are several modern-day scientists who are Christians. If you want a big list to look at, I'll link up a Wikipedia article for you down in the description to check out. A while back, guys, I ran into this great article in Scientific American, which is not a Christian publication, right? On the topic of atheism and science. So the interview was with this theoretical physicist at Dartmouth College named Marcelo Gleiser, who is a Templeton Prize winner, by the way. And the most interesting part of the article was Gleiser's feeling that atheism is actually inconsistent with the scientific method. What? Here's what he says. I honestly think atheism is inconsistent with the scientific method. What I mean by that is, what is atheism? It's a statement, a categorical statement, that expresses belief in non-belief. Like, I don't believe, even though I have no evidence for or against. Simply, I don't believe, period. It's a declaration. But in science, we don't really do declarations. We say, okay, you can have this hypothesis. You have to have some evidence for or against that. And so an agnostic would say, look, I have no evidence for God. But on the other hand, an agnostic wouldn't acknowledge a right to make a final statement about something he or she doesn't know about. Like the absence of evidence is an evidence of absence and all of that. So that was his quote. But I think it's really well stated by Gleiser. And that's exactly why it's just silly for a biology student of all people to basically say, Chris, basic science completely rules out the possibility that there could have been a designer behind the universe. Because that's making a categorical statement. And it's a statement that reflects a scientistic point of view, but not a scientific one. So in contrast to certain materialist scientists, Gleiser goes on to acknowledge that science has limits. And again, this is in Scientific American, right? He says, I'm not going to lie about what science can and cannot do because politicians are misusing science and trying to politicize the scientific discourse. I'm going to be honest about the powers of science so that people can actually believe me for my honesty and transparency. If you don't want to be honest and transparent, you're just going to become a liar like everybody else, which is why I get upset by misstatements. Like when you have scientists like Stephen Hawking and Lawrence Krauss among them claiming we've solved the problem of the origin of the universe or that string theory is correct and that the final theory of everything is at hand. Such statements are bogus. 
So I feel like I'm a guardian for the integrity of science right now, someone you can trust because this person is open and honest enough to admit that scientific enterprise has limitations, which doesn't make it weak. Those are Gleiser's words. And with that, I think this is the perfect time to descend, so to speak, into the topic of Darwinism. You know, because common descent. So remember my buddy, the friendly biology student, leaving me these nice comments? Well, it turns out that he had never actually read Darwin's famous book on the origin of species, which really baffled me. I mean, he wasn't studying chemistry, so I could understand if he skipped the writings of Antoine Lavoisier. And he wasn't studying astronomy, so I could understand if he wasn't well-versed in the ideas of Nicholas Copernicus. It's not like he was studying physics, so it'd be understandable if he wasn't versed in the works of Albert Einstein or Stephen Hawking. And he wasn't studying quantum mechanics, so I wouldn't expect him to be steeped in the knowledge of Max Planck, Warner Heisenberg, or Erwin Schrodinger. But it does seem like for a biology student, it might be a prerequisite to have read On the Origin of Species. Especially if this dude is going to go around lecturing people about Darwinian evolution, right? I mean, Christians are often unfairly labeled intellectually lazy. Even though, I'll be the first to admit, I have run into more than one intellectually lazy Christian before. But let's be honest, though. I mean, this particular biology student makes it obvious that Darwinists can be just as intellectually lazy as anybody else. So not too long ago, a fascinating article was published called Giving Up Darwin, A Fond Farewell to a Brilliant and Beautiful Theory. And it brought up some of the mathematical, geological, and biological reasons why scientists have begun looking for alternatives to Darwinian and even to neo-Darwinian evolution. The article's by a professor of computer science at Yale University named David Galerntner. Now, he's not a Christian, which is important to point out, but he's brilliantly summarized the best reasons why, from a scientific point of view, it's time for the world to move on from Darwin. So here's how the article starts off. Darwinian evolution is a brilliant and beautiful scientific theory. Today, it is basic to the credo that defines the modern worldview. Accepting the theory as settled truth, no more subject to debate than the earth being round or the sky blue or force being mass times acceleration, certifies that you're devoutly orthodox in your scientific views, which in turn is an essential first step towards being taken seriously in any part of modern intellectual life. But what if Darwin was wrong? Darwin's brilliant and lovely theory only explains how it could have happened. And then he goes on to say, there's no reason to doubt that Darwin successfully explained the small adjustments by which an organism adapts to local circumstances, changes to fur density or wing style or beak shape. But there are many reasons to doubt whether he can answer the hard questions and explain the big picture, not the fine tuning of existing species, but the emergence of new ones. And here's the kicker, the killer line. The origin of species is exactly what Darwin cannot explain. Let me give you one more paragraph. Stephen Meyer's thoughtful and meticulous Darwin's Doubt from 2013 convinced me that Darwin has failed. He cannot answer the big question. Two other books are also essential. The Deniable Darwin and Other Essays, 2009, by David Berlinski, and Debating Darwin's Doubt from 2015, an anthology edited by David Klinghoffer, which collects some of the arguments that Meyer's book stirred up. 
These three form a fateful battle group that most people would rather ignore. Darwin's Doubt is one of the most important books in a generation. Few open-minded people will finish it with their faith in Darwin intact. Now, we're going to get into that book, Darwin's Doubt, among others, in a bit. But for now, let me just say, if you're interested in fully dissecting this article and the arguments within it, I'm going to link it up in the description for you, along with some other resources. But here, I do want to pull out one important mathematical challenge to Darwinian evolution outlined in the article. Specifically, it's in relation to how rare successful mutations are, even when you add in lots of organisms and a staggering immensity of time, as Glerner says. Now, I understand this might be a little bit hard to grasp, but just give it a try. I believe in you. And before we get into it, just to help you better appreciate the magnitude of the kinds of numbers we're going to be talking about, here's an illustration from another guy whose thoughts we're going to get to even later on in the podcast as well. A million seconds is 11 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. A trillion seconds is 32,000 years. Okay, so that's the difference that three orders of magnitude can make when you go from 10 to the 6th to 10 to the 9th to 10 to the 12th, for example. That's 10 to the 79 billion. It's pretty hard to comprehend how big of a number that actually is, right? Okay, with that for reference, let's go ahead and look at that mathematical challenge. Here's how the article puts it. Stay with me now. Do the numbers balance out? Is neo-Darwinian evolution plausible after all? Consider the whole history of living things, the entire group of every living organism ever. It's dominated numerically by bacteria. Suppose then that every bacterium that has ever lived contributes one mutation before its demise to the history of life. Just one. This is a generous assumption. Most bacteria pass on their genetic information unchanged, unmutated. Did you catch that? Mutations are the exception. In any case, there have evidently been, in the whole history of life, around 10 to the 40 bacteria, yielding around 10 to the 40 mutations. That is a very large number of chances at any game. But given that the odds each time are 1 in 10 to the 77 against, it's not large enough. The odds against blind Darwinian chance having turned up even one mutation with the potential to push evolution forward are 10 to the 40 times 1 divided by 10 to the 77, 10 to the 40 tries, where your odds of success each time are 1 in 10 to the 77, which equals 1 in 10 to the 37. So here it is. In practical terms, the odds are still zero. Zero odds of producing a single promising mutation in the whole history of life. Darwin loses. So for me, personally, Chris, that improbability and that improbability alone, all by itself, that's enough for me to intellectually reject the theory of Darwinian evolution as a theory that's sufficient to explain life as we know it. Basically, at the end of the day, Darwin's able to explain the survival of the fittest, but not the arrival of the fittest, which I guess is great information for breeders. So at this point, I just want to pause and reflect. Me, Chris, if I'm being intellectually honest and rational with this piece of information that I've just gleaned, so now that I know how incredibly, ridiculously, fabulously, astonishingly, exceedingly improbable the odds are that Darwinian evolution created life as we know it, 
Is it silly or even beyond silly, really, to talk seriously about things like homology or vestigial organs as supporting pillars or evidence of a Darwinian worldview? For me, that's a resounding yes. You could debate common descent or common design all day, but if Darwinian evolution is too improbable to even have created life in the first place, what's the point? To quote The Office, it's kind of like debating the exchange rate between Shroot Bucks and Stanley Nichols, which is approximately equal to the ratio of unicorns to leprechauns, right? Darwinian evolution maybe being like the Shroot Bucks, let's say, and vestigial organs being like Stanley Nichols. <laughs> I mean, I'm just kidding around. But seriously, if you want to do a deeper dive into homology and vestigial organs and that kind of stuff, I will link up a really informative and highly entertaining video also down in the description. I mean, I've gone back and I've looked at those odds several times, and they're generous. I can't imagine anyone looking at those and not having serious doubts about Darwinism. I mean, no one in their right mind would go to Vegas and gamble with those kind of odds because literally, you would never, ever, ever win. Ever. So why then would you take those same kind of odds and gamble with something as important as your worldview? I can't do it. Because frankly, there's real implications. Now, if you're sitting here wondering to yourself, well, if the odds are truly that bad, then why haven't scientists tried to come up with something else? That's what I wondered, too. Well, the thing is, they have tried. Darwinian evolution has been deconstructing for a good long while now, behind the scenes. For instance, just a few years ago, the Royal Society got together in London for this three-day conference titled New Trends in Evolutionary Biology. And they got together to discuss the as-yet-unsolved problems with the modern synthesis, a.k.a. Neo-Darwinian theory. So, not to bore you, but just to drill into that a little bit deeper, some of the issues they discussed included things like phenotypic complexity and novelty, a.k.a. the origin of complicated things like eyes, and also non-gradual forms or modes of transition, a.k.a. fossils missing from the record that Darwinists would either expect or like to find. But there are several newer evolutionary mechanisms that scientists are trying to explore as alternatives to traditional Darwinism. And you can actually check them out for yourself in chapters 15 and 16 in the book Darwin's Doubt, which talks about a bunch in lots of detail and some of the issues that they face. Now, I just said a minute ago that for me, the insanely probable odds alone were enough to intellectually reject the theory of Darwinian evolution as a theory sufficient enough to explain life as we know it. But there are several other roads that have led me to the exact same conclusion. You know, like the idea that life emerged from a prebiotic soup is particularly intriguing to me from a biochemistry or molecular biology perspective because molecules don't have brains, and yet somehow they assemble to create life. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but then scientists say, well, yeah, but over millions or billions of years. Now, we just talked about a mathematical challenge to Darwinian evolution, which shows that lots of time, even all the time since the beginning of the universe, wouldn't be a large enough space for Darwinian evolution to work within. But now, let's look at time from a chemical perspective rather than a mathematical perspective. From a chemical perspective, time might actually be the enemy of abiogenesis, or the emergence of evolutionary life. Here's how it's put by a guy named James Tour, who's a synthetic organic chemist at Rice University. Carbohydrates are kinetic products. They undergo caramelization or the Cannizzaro reaction. They decompose. So in other words, when you make a carbohydrate, that isn't the final product that would form in that reaction mixture. You have to stop that reaction. 
So a chemist watches the reaction and stops it at a certain time in order to stop the progression of the molecule. If this is just undirected or unguided, it keeps going into other garbage. Carbohydrates are kinetic products, meaning they caramelize, they polymerize into a bunch of trash, just like when you take sugar and heat the thing up, it turns into caramel. That's what happens to carbohydrates. They don't stay simple carbohydrates. They end up actually dehydrating. So essentially what Tour is saying here, and I'll link up the video so you can check this out for yourself, but there's no chemist in the process of evolution to make sure all the chemicals were coming together just right and then to supervise and control all the reactions to make sure that the states of properties didn't change or do something they shouldn't in order to produce life. Now here's what Tour says elsewhere. Life requires carbohydrates, nucleic acids, liquids, and proteins. And he's talking about scientists in labs trying to recreate life. So what's the chemistry behind their origin? Biologists seem to think that there's well-understood prebiotic molecular mechanisms for their synthesis. They've been grossly misinformed. And no wonder, few biologists have ever synthesized a complex molecule ab initio. If they're in the lab and they need a molecule, they purchase molecular synthesis kits, which are, of course, designed by synthetic chemists and which feature simplistic protocols. So basically what Tour's pointing out here is, if I can paraphrase, in order to prove their origin of life theories, you have scientists today working in labs, purchasing these design kits. And they're guiding and directing things in order to try to prove an unguided and undirected theory that supposedly took place outside of a lab. So he goes on to say, DNA requires a five carbon sugar, one of eight possible pentoses. Blind synthetic pathways lead to a host of products that are unwanted because they're unneeded. And yet, acting as blindly as Lewis Braille, nature somehow found the requisite five-carbon sugar. How? Any prebiotic system is destined, at least some of the time, to crash and burn. How does nature know when to stop, or why? So, to kind of summarize what Tour is saying, in a lab, when your origin of life experiment goes off the rails, you start over. In an unguided natural scenario, the evolutionary process itself, it doesn't know when it's gone off the rails because it doesn't know what it's looking to create in the first place. Because remember, molecules can't think. And even if it did understand that it had gone off the rails and had to start over, we're talking about starting over from point A. You don't just hit Command Z and go back a step. You gotta go back 400 million years or a billion years or whatever. Again, there's just not enough time for Darwinian evolution to even get off the ground. Or I guess we could say to jump out of the soup. So Darwinian advocates like to say that lots of time is the key to making things work, but that doesn't really help when it comes to molecular biology, chemistry, and abiogenesis, where lots of time can actually be devastating to that unguided process. So there's that, but let's also talk about this guy named Michael Behe, who's written some very interesting books on evolution, one of which was Darwin's Black Box, which talks about things in nature that are irreducibly complex. So you and I each have a body, which is made up of various parts. And if we lost an eye or a foot, we'd still be able to function. But certain things in nature can't be reduced and still remain functional. So here's an illustration he gives. It's like a mousetrap. And you've got these five parts, a hammer, a spring, a catch, a platform, and a holding bar. If you take away any of those parts, the mousetrap no longer functions. Every single part is essential. All right, so that same kind of thing can be found in nature, like in a bacterium, which is a single cell microbe. 
and some bacterium have a flagellum. Remember that word from science class? Well, a flagellum is kind of like an outboard motor on a boat. It rotates to propel that bacteria through liquid. And if the bacteria didn't have the flagella, they couldn't survive because they couldn't swim in order to search for food. So a flagellum has several parts that you find like on any human-made motor, including things like a drive shaft and a rotor and a clutch, among other things. And guess what? If you remove even one of those pieces, that flagellum doesn't work anymore. Why? Because it's irreducibly complex. So it's not the kind of thing that could develop slowly and fully by random and unguided forces. So that's just one example of irreducible complexity. And just as a quick side note, if you've never looked into the amazing nanotechnology or molecular machines inside of cells, you really should look up some of the YouTube videos. They're just incredible. I mean, I even have a personal favorite. It's the kinesin protein, which literally has legs and a motor and walks along these little microtubules to deliver a payload. It's kind of like a little cellular FedEx or UPS truck driving out on the road. Except in this case, the road breaks down and reassembles elsewhere within the cell wherever it's needed. I mean, I have a mind and I've been to school and I couldn't design a kinesin protein. And I'll be honest, I mean, the first time I saw a kinesin protein animation in action, my first thought definitely wasn't, oh wow, that thing evolved by unguided and undirected chance. No way. Just like I would never think a FedEx truck just evolved from nothing with its engine and wheels and whatnot. I mean, to the contrary, my first thought after seeing a kinesin was, oh, wow, how could that be anything other than designed? Anyways, Behe wrote another book not too long ago called Darwin Devolves, which shows how new scientific discoveries point to the fact that Darwin's mechanism works by a process of devolution rather than evolution. So it talks about how evolution isn't actually able to create anything at the genetic level. Here's a really simple illustration he gives. Let's say that you only have a certain amount of gas in your car, and if you don't get to the nearest gas station before you run out of gas, you die. Let's also say that given the weight of your car, there's no way you're going to make it to that gas station. So what can you do? Well, you might start ripping out things like the seats, or you could tear off the hood to lighten the load, which might actually allow you to get to the gas station, but only by degrading your car. So the long and the short of it is that those rare, helpful mutations don't actually upgrade DNA. Behe gives another really great illustration having to do with tech, which is perfect for my normal audience. He says, getting a new phone is a good example of an upgrade. It's more helpful because it has completely new features, but mutations don't install new features in DNA. They only make changes to existing ones. So in this tech illustration, a genetic mutation would be more like disabling your GPS, it might actually save you some battery life, but not by adding a new function. All it does is switch off a feature that was already there. Uh, so I think we could probably touch on biomimetics at this point. Is that a term you've ever run across before? What it is is a field of engineering that's making breakthroughs by mimicking biology. Basically, humans, in an effort to create more efficient designs, are taking inspiration from nature. So here's some examples given by Behe, actually. Studying the eyes of flies led to the development of advanced optical sensors. The physics of dragonfly wings allowed increased efficiency of wind turbines. Cockroach mechanics helped humans increase agility in robots. And a honeybee algorithm helped optimize the internet. So my question is, how is it that nature has all these amazing designs that are far superior to anything that we've come up with on our own to the point where we as humans need to study nature's designs and borrow from them in order to enhance our own designs? 
Because if everything we see in front of us is the product of undirected randomness and time and chance, how did nature then get so much smarter? Especially when mutations, yeah, even those rare helpful mutations, only degrade what's already in existence and can't actually create anything new. Because remember, Darwin accounts for the survival of the fittest or the survival of these natural designs, you might say, but not the arrival of the fittest or the arrival of these natural designs. So you can look at something like the plant hopper, which is an insect that actually has real, I mean, you got to see a picture of it, like seriously true real gears in its legs. And let's be honest, go look at the pictures. Those gears were there long before the Greek mathematician and engineer Hero of Alexandria referenced gears around 50 AD, which is one of the earliest references we have of toothed gears. Yeah, think about it. All right, but let's get back to the idea of improbability. You guys still with me? I'm not sure if you've ever thought about it, but it's absolutely mind-blowing that life can even exist here on this planet. Mind-blowing regardless of how it originated. Now, I happen to subscribe to the idea that the universe appears to be very finely tuned. And not only that, but the place humanity finds itself in the universe also appears to be very finely tuned. And I guess if you're an atheist, you'd probably say, well, we're beyond ridiculously lucky to be here. Okay, but let me just give you an example. If Earth were just slightly closer to, or further from, the sun, then life on this planet couldn't even exist. That's because it'd either be too hot or too cold. And right now, since we're alive, obviously, it happens to be just about right. But there's lots of examples of things that have to be just right for humans to exist. For example, like the gravitational constant or the cosmological constant or mass density of the universe or the expansion rate of the universe or the initial entropy of the universe. If those weren't exactly right, we simply wouldn't find ourselves in a life-friendly universe. And that's just for starters. Kind of along those same lines, here's something I just can't get out of my head. Why, during a total eclipse, does the moon so perfectly block out the sun? I mean, it fits like a puzzle piece over the sun. Why? Well, here's the why. The sun's about 400 times larger than the moon in diameter, but the moon, get this, is 400 times closer. Not 400 and 200 or 900 and 300, 400 and 400. Now, if you're a secular cosmologist, you'd probably say, well, yeah, but that just happens to be an interesting coincidence because those perfect numbers wouldn't have been perfect a billion years ago and won't be perfect in about 1.4 billion years in the future. Why? Because the moon is slowly receding from the Earth. Okay, but why would it be that the most habitable place in our solar system, a.k.a. our planet, yields the best view of solar eclipses at just the precise time in Earth's history when observers can best appreciate them. Why? I mean, think about it. I just can't imagine any sensible person out there encountering this kind of fine-tuning and not wondering to themselves, at least, whether they're here by design or by a purposeless, meaningless accident. I mean, mentally, I just can't get there to the purposeless, meaningless accident. Uh, but people like Richard Dawkins have said that the universe only appears to be designed. And we'll talk about that in a minute when we get to something called the DNA enigma. But what I actually find more interesting than what Dawkins says about it is what the late Stephen Hawking posited in response to the apparent fine-tuning of the universe. What he came up with was the idea of the multiverse. So in string theory, the multiverse is a place where a lot of universes exist. 
In fact, the multiverse could contain an infinite number of universes. Why? Because the conditions for life are so perfect here in our own universe that they either had to be the result of a designing mind or, as Stephen would say, there must be an infinite number of universes, one of which just so happens to be the one that we live in. So what someone who isn't interested in exploring the idea of a universal designer might say then is, well, yeah, things appear improbably fine-tuned, but hey, we're here. So it appears like we happen to just win the universal lottery. We just got infinitely lucky and happened to end up in this one universe within the multiverse where everything just happened to click. Now, if you can believe that, great. And Stephen Hawking was a brilliant guy. But I'm just saying, personally, I don't feel like the multiverse as a theory really has any legs. Why? Well, the thing is, we don't have any proof that even one other universe exists, much less an infinite amount. You know, so scientific materialists, they like to say everything they believe either lives or dies by proof. It's all about the proof. Well, it's worth repeating then that we have no proof whatsoever that other universes exist. I'm just saying. But a materialist might also say then, well, it's a theory. It's a hypothesis. It should be considered. But then I would reply to that, so what about the God hypothesis? All right, so let's think about it a little more. Even if you could bring yourself to believe in an infinite number of universes, how would that all have gotten started? What's the origin? Because we know that this universe had a beginning, which was derisively called the Big Bang by astronomer Fred Hoyle, who later expressed skepticism about atheism. So who's to say the mechanism for generating multiple universes wouldn't also require fine-tuning just to get started? In fact, that's exactly what former geophysicist and PhD in the philosophy of science Stephen C. Meyer says would actually have had to be the case. Arguably, you can't get away from the fine-tuning, even in the multiverse. But, I mean, the multiverse it has multiple other issues, or maybe infinite issues. Like, if you're going to posit a theory of infinite universes in order to make anything possible, then you necessarily end up with the possibility that there's life in every one of those infinite universes, because anything's possible, right? But if it's possible that every universe has life, wouldn't it have to be possible that every universe wouldn't have life? But then that doesn't make sense if you're being told that you just happened to get lucky and won the cosmic lottery and ended up in this life-supporting universe. I mean, that's just one example of the contradictions that pop up with the multiverse theory. I mean, if we're just being honest, you feel free to disagree with me. Tell me, Chris, I disagree with you. But some people who make science a religion are willing to say, hey, anything's possible. Well, God's not possible, but literally anything else is possible. But I'm saying to myself, Chris, use your brain. We don't live in an imaginary universe. Look around. We're here in this real place. I mean, yeah, in our imagination, we can do anything. We can imagine a universe with Jedis and Siths and Star Destroyers and Jar Jar Binks. Or we can imagine a universe with a guy in a metal suit who can fly around and fight a guy named Thanos and keep him from eradicating life with just a snap of a finger. We can imagine that, but it's not science. That's science fiction. In this universe, in the real universe, the universe you occupy, there are real limits outside of the imagination. If you're starving on a deserted island, you can imagine a nice, thick, juicy steak, but that's not going to keep you from starving, right? I mean, the Avengers aren't going to assemble here. As cool a guy as Groot is, there's no such thing as a talking tree. Limits exist here. And not only do they exist, but they're an important part of how we define reality. 
When I tell you there's no such thing as a talking tree, the only reason that makes sense to you is because you know what a tree is and what its limits are. Anytime you define something, you're describing its limits. An ocean wave isn't a sound wave. Left isn't right. A sight isn't a smell. But only because of limits can we say there's an ocean and there's North America. Limits are a fact of life. I mean, to be logical is to be limited. For something to be right, it can't also be wrong, because the truth by definition is exclusive, at least here in this real universe. If everything was right, then nothing would be wrong. That's just the way it works. Only in an imaginary world can you get rid of all limits. So the multiverse, it can only exist in the realm of the imagination, because we live in this real universe that has real limits. Things in this universe obey laws and rules. The law of gravitation, the laws of motion, the law of conservation of energy. Only if the laws of physics hold true can science even be possible. Only if these scientific laws hold true can things be tested and observed and predicted and dependable. They're either true or not, limited or not. So look, I just saw a YouTube video recently titled Parallel Worlds Probably Exist. Here's why. Talk about clickbait. But notice, if there certainly were parallel worlds, then the uploader of the video would have titled it Parallel Worlds Certainly Exist. Here's why. But that certainly wasn't the title of the video. Now, the new atheist might pop up here and be like, hey, Pot, it's the kettle, and I'm just here to tell you that Christians believe in miracles, and those are imaginary. And I promise we're going to get into that in the second half of this podcast, so don't go anywhere. It's not something we're going to just ignore. Now, you may not believe that the fine-tuning in the universe points to a fine-tuner. I do. But is believing that the universe was designed by a super-intelligent mind more or less rational than believing in an infinite number of universes? I mean, you don't look at the Empire State Building and say, now there's a thing that self-assembled. No, because you know better. You don't get a skyscraper without an architect. And the universe is a much more complicated structure than a skyscraper. I just kind of find it odd that you have these high-profile atheists out there deriding Christians for believing that miracles are possible, and we're going to talk about that, who themselves believe in this implausible, irrational, chimerical universe. So they would say, where's the evidence for God? And I would be like, well, where's the evidence for the multiverse? So in my mind, at least, the second you turn the corner and start talking about multiple universes, that's the very second where it seems like you've kind of entered the land of fairy tales where you're once again back to calculating the ratio of unicorns to leprechauns. In his book On the Origin of Species, Darwin mentioned that the fossil record tied to the Cambrian explosion, which was an event in Earth's history, could end up being a problem for his theory of evolution. Now, I'm not just making it up. That is in Darwin's own book, which is not something that scientific atheists ever seem to bring up and clearly wasn't something that that biology student that I mentioned earlier would have known, having not read this. The potential problem that Darwin spotted was that since evolution is a bottom-up process, hence the notion of common descent, we should be able to find clear ancestral precursors in the Precambrian strata, or the layers of sedimentary rock, leading up to that enormous cache of new animal body plans that appear so suddenly in the Cambrian strata, you know, in order to prove his theory. But they weren't there, and they're still not there. 
So Darwin's Doubt, which is the book that David Galanter cited in that article that I mentioned earlier, does a deep dive or exploration into this and explores the fossils of the Burgess Shale in Canada, among other places, which happens to be one of the places humans get their best look at that Cambrian era. It is a thick book, but it's really interesting and definitely eye-opening. I'll link it in the description. Meyer is also the author of another excellent book I'd highly recommend checking out called Signature in the Cell. Signature talks about how Francis Crick realized in 1959 that chemicals in the DNA molecule function as alphabetic characters in a written language or digital characters in a machine code. And Crick realized that that digital information directs protein synthesis, sort of like genetic assembly instructions. Long story short, Meyer argues that this particular information found in DNA is of a type and complexity that when you look around, there's no other source for that particular type of information that humans know of outside of a mind. A mind is the only thing humans know about that produces that kind of functionally specified information. So that's what's referred to as the DNA enigma. Now, Bill Gates, you know who that is, says DNA is like a computer program, but far more advanced than any software ever created. Now, I don't know how much coding you've done in your lifetime. Personally, all I've ever done is play around with some HTML and CSS. But even I know that randomly changing characters in the code always breaks the code. It never magically or luckily enhances it. That's because the characters in the code and the functions in the code are specifically arranged by an intelligent mind, aka by the programmer, to do meaningful things. So computer code is functionally specified information, as opposed to something called Shannon information, which would be unspecified. Well, if DNA is like a computer program, but far more sophisticated and advanced, and if it's full of functionally specified information, maybe the best explanation for its origin is that it was developed by a mind. Because again, literally, we as humans know of exactly zero other sources of information like the information found in DNA outside of a mind. And at this point in the conversation, we come to that infamous saying that people sometimes like to throw around. Well, if you have a bunch of monkeys typing on a bunch of keyboards for long enough, eventually they'll randomly recreate a passage from Shakespeare. Which, mm, that almost sounds kind of plausible if you don't actually think about it too hard, right? But here's the thing. Even if every proton in the observable universe were a monkey with a typewriter typing from the Big Bang until the end of the universe, when protons might no longer exist, they would still need a far greater amount of time. More than 360,000 orders of magnitude longer to have even a 1 in 10 to the 500 chance of success. So to put it another way, for a 1 in a trillion chance of success, there would need to be 10 to the 360,641 observable universes made of protonic monkeys. In other words, no truly thoughtful person can take the typing monkey statement seriously, if you ask me. Let's swing back to Richard Dawkins for a second, because he always does his best to make Christians seem as unintelligent as possible. So Dawkins is on record as saying that panspermia could be behind the origin of life on Earth. Now, if you've never heard of the idea of panspermia, I'll just break it down. It's basically the idea that life on Earth could have been seeded here by aliens. 
And just for your reference, I'll just let his words speak for themselves. Here's his full panspermia quote. It could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. Now, that is a possibility, and an intriguing possibility. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of our chemistry, molecular biology. You might find a signature of some kind of designer. And that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. That's from 2008. So Dawkins is more or less acknowledging that the information in DNA might seem to plausibly point to the signature of some kind of designer, which is kind of like Stephen Meyer's book that talks all about that. But here's the thing. Even if you wanted to believe that aliens seeded life onto the planet, it only pushes the origin of life back. Because now you're just asking, well, who created the aliens? How did the aliens get there? And of course, the same goes for the idea that we're all living in a simulation. That's Elon Musk's thing, right? Well, who created the creators of the simulation? Anyways, Dawkins' mind it has quite an imagination. I will say that. And actually, speaking of minds, the whole idea of mind, of consciousness, is anathema to certain atheists and materialists. Whether you're talking about your mind or my mind or the mind of, let's say, a super intelligent designer. They're all problems for the materialist, and they'll go to absolutely absurd lengths to try to convince people that mind or minds don't exist. Yeah, seriously. Now look, if you're listening to me right now, that means that you're a conscious human being. Because not only are you processing and making sense out of the words that I'm speaking, but you understand that you are you and that I am me. So let's pretend for a second that you skipped the first part of this episode and you still don't realize how insanely improbable Darwinian evolution is. Here would be an interesting quandary for you. How in the world did inanimate atoms ever come to be able to reflect upon themselves as a result of a purely unguided process? I mean, at what point precisely did consciousness or thought suddenly appear out of nowhere in the evolutionary process? For the first time, or the second time, or the millionth time, and also how? And for that matter, why do minds and thoughts even exist in the first place? And for that matter, why is the universe such a rational place? Why is it so mind-compatible or mind-friendly? For instance, why is the universe so mathematical to the point where Galileo would call it a grand book written in the language of mathematics? Math requires intelligence. Humans are intelligent, and we use math to predict things. We use it to predict and discover the Higgs boson particle, for instance. And we could do that because the universe just so happens to be a place that's friendly to our minds. It's a rational place that we can make sense out of. But in order to make sense out of something, that something has to make sense to a someone, someone with a mind. You remember that saying, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? It's kind of interesting to think about right now because ears process sound. And if no ears are within range of the sound, then the sound that the tree makes might as well not exist. To me, there's a similarity there in terms of the rationality of the universe and a mind that's actually able to comprehend and make sense out of it. Like an ear is made for sound, it's like our minds are made for this universe. A guy you might have heard of before named C.S. Lewis weighed in on this whole issue of mind versus brain. He said this, 
if minds are wholly dependent on brains and brains on biochemistry and biochemistry in the long run on the meaningless flux of atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. In other words, I think what he was saying was how would it even make sense to put any stock in what a materialist is telling you? Now, certain Darwinists out there like to point out that if matter was in fact all that there was, and if all that existed was brain or brain matter, then necessarily there would be no such thing as mind. And if that was the case, then humans wouldn't actually be able to make choices because nature would be totally deterministic. In other words, determinism says there's no such thing as free will. I saw a picture of an ad campaign once that said, there's probably no free will. Now stop worrying as if you had a choice. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty obnoxious. I don't even know why someone would spend money on that kind of an ad. I don't know what it was accomplishing. <laughs> but anyways, try to follow this. Atheist materialists believe that free will doesn't exist and that no person alive has the capacity to decide whether or not to believe anything. And yet, they want you to believe that what they believe is the one exception to nobody actually being able to have a belief. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Logically, that's just nonsense. It's hard for me to imagine somebody seriously endorsing that kind of thinking. Still, it gets even weirder, though. Like, materialists will tell you that nothing exists that can't be empirically measured via their sense impressions. So, basically, if they can't see it or weigh it or measure it in the physical realm, then they would deny that it exists. Well, then how do you calculate the volume or length of love or logic or justice or the natural laws or mathematical principles or reason or any number of intangible things that I think we would all agree are not only real, but also very important. Think about it. I mean, the thought that you're thinking at this very moment, does it have any material weight? But thoughts are real. You think, therefore you are. And because you are, thoughts exist. And to deny them is truly nonsense, I feel. <laughs> so anyways, next time you hear somebody like Dawkins say that Christians believe in nonsense, just remember that. So, to do a little recap thus far, I believe that you have a mind, something materialists hope to change your mind about, even though they don't believe that you have the capacity to make choices. We talked about the new body plans that suddenly appeared in the Cambrian explosion, and of course you can't have body plans without DNA, and you don't get DNA without specified functional information. And we talked about how those body plans gave Darwin himself a potential reason to doubt his own theory, which he wrote about in his famous book. We talked a lot about the universe that we happen to find ourselves in, which also happens to be the only universe we can prove the existence of. And then we talked about several of the different ways that the universe appears to be very finely tuned to even allow for life, much less for this conversation to be happening. And we talked about how for years, scientists have been exploring alternative evolutionary mechanisms to replace Darwinian evolution because they've realized the math just isn't adding up. And then back near the beginning, we talked about how Christians have made enormous contributions to science over the years, and indeed, many continue to do so today. And we kind of kicked things off with the Templeton Prize-winning scientists that claimed that atheism is actually incompatible with the scientific method. Shall we continue? Can I just bring one thing up real quick? Nobody looks at Stonehenge and thinks to themselves, now there's a thing that just appeared randomly. Nobody thinks that. You look at something as simple and also, I guess, as complex as Stonehenge, and immediately you realize that that was designed. 
you realize in an instant that there was a mind or minds behind Stonehenge. It's obvious. Not only is it just obvious with a glance, but those stones were arranged with the purposeful arrangement. Some of them are aligned to the sunset of the winter solstice and the sunrise of the summer solstice, if I get that right. Either way, it's clearly not accidental. And Stonehenge is a very simple thing compared to something like the human eye. And yet, there's people out there thinking to themselves, now the human eye, there's a thing that just appeared naturally. Or come on, like Earth's place in relation to the sun or the cosmological constant or the expansion rate of the universe. How can that be random? <laughs> there's a really interesting book by a guy who describes himself as a secular Jew, i.e. not a Christian, not a theist. His name's David Berlinski, kind of mentioned him earlier, but his book's called The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. It's basically a response to Dawkins and some of the new atheists. Not only is it full of great insights, but a lot of Berlinski's writing happens to be hilarious. Sometimes I read Berlinski and I laugh more than I laugh at a sitcom. But let me just read you what's probably the most quoted paragraph from that book, because it really hits the nail on the head. Has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it's not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. End quote. So I would say The Devil's Delusion is really a must-read if you feel like you've ever encountered the myth that scientific atheists have all the answers and that everyone else is just stupid. It's an important reality check. Berlinski also provides a great counter-perspective to secular humanists like Steven Pinker who say that humanism alone is responsible for making the world better while religious beliefs are actually a hindrance to humanity's progression. Of all Berlinski's books and essays, The Devil's Delusion is certainly the most accessible that I've read. And even then, you might have to reread it a couple of times to really get everything out of it. But I've also cracked into his latest book called Human Nature, and so far, it's really great as well. It absolutely eviscerates the doctrines of contemporary nihilism masquerading as science. That one I might not necessarily recommend to just the average reader. It's a little less accessible, kind of math-heavy in some parts. But again, if you want to check it out, I'll be sure to link it up in the episode description. Now, there's something else that's really important to point out before we go any further, and it's this. Before you ever come to the origin of life, however it came about, you first have to deal with the origin of matter, the origin of the stuff that actually makes up the physical universe. It doesn't matter how you section or divide up physical concrete reality. What you end up with is a quantity that can't explain its own existence. This is from Ravi Zacharias, by the way. So, if all material quantities can't explain their own existence, the only possibility for self-explanation would be something non-material. And yet, 
The universe did have a beginning. It's here. You're here. In it. Now, we know that there was an event, now referred to as the Big Bang, which kicked off at some point in the very distant past. How do we know? Well, we can measure redshift, where the wavelength of light in space is actually stretched towards the red part of the spectrum, which indicates that galaxies, for instance, are expanding. They're moving away. Okay, well, if you rewind that process, then you get to the point where matter would be getting more densely compacted and space would be getting more and more tightly curved. And the math shows that at some point in the finite past, there would be a point where the curvature of space would go to an infinite corresponding to zero spatial volume. So, as Stephen Meyer asks, how much stuff can you put in no space? Obviously, common sense says no things go in no space. So Meyer's saying that the new cosmology is moving in a decidedly anti-materialistic direction. Because if you want to explain the origin of the universe as a singularity in matter, space, time, and energy, then you need a different kind of cause outside of matter, space, time, and energy. And if that's the case, then all of a sudden you're staring theistic implications right in the eye. Now, we already touched on that just a second earlier. Remember when we talked about it doesn't matter how you section up or divide up physical concrete reality, what you end up with is a quantity that can't explain its own existence. So, if all material quantities can't explain their own existence, the only possibility for self-explanation would be something non-material. We've been here already. In other words, a non-material first cause. Well, if Darwinian evolution is impossibly improbable, and if the universe, as we find it, appears to be so finely tuned, then that non-material first cause all of a sudden starts looking an awful lot like a design mastermind. Now, Meyer, the guy who wrote Darwin's Doubt and Signature in the Cell, he's got a new book coming out really soon, which I can't wait to order and devour and dissect, called The Return of the God Hypothesis which if any of the stuff that I've been talking about so far has sounded even slightly interesting to you, or even if you're like, that's bogus, but I'm going to see why it's bogus, then you should pre-order it right now. Because at some point, this podcast is going to end, and you're going to be left curious and wondering, well, what about this and that? And this is going to be a great place to pick back up. But what he does in the book, and I'm just paraphrasing him here, is examine the scientific case for the beginning, the scientific case for the fine-tuning, and then the scientific case for the evidence of design in biology with those big infusions of information, i.e. DNA. And then he steps back and he's like, okay, we had this scientific hypothesis. The universe had a beginning. And he's like, all right, the hypothesis is that there's design at the beginning. But we also have this competing hypothesis that there's a multiverse. And then he talks about the reasons why he would prefer a theistic design hypothesis over a multiverse hypothesis. And then he steps back again and he's like, well, look, what if we take a look at all of the world's worldviews or systems of thought? Theism, deism, pantheism, materialism, all the isms. And then treat them as hypotheses in order to see which one best explains this ensemble of evidence that we have about biological and cosmological origins. So it's like deism. That could explain the fine-tuning and the origin of the universe. That cosmology puzzle piece. But deism doesn't offer a good explanation for the biological evidence. And he's like, well, the space alien hypothesis, that might dubiously explain the biological evidence, but it would never be able to explain 
the cosmological evidence because the aliens would necessarily have to be like humans. They would have to exist after the Big Bang, not before. And then pantheism, which makes God and matter coextensive, in other words, it's like God and matter, they're just one and the same. That runs into the same problem that materialism faces, which is to say it's still all contained within time and space. There's nothing transcendent outside of matter, space, time, and energy to do the actual causing of the universe. So by the end of the book, what you're going to end up with is a potential intellectually defensible path to the creator of the universe as described in the Judeo-Christian scriptures. It sounds awesome to me. I can't wait to check it out. As we're starting to wrap up this first half of the podcast, I do just want to point out there are some prominent atheists out there that like to say crazy things as if they were really pithy and insightful that can really just border on the nonsensical. Just to give you one example, there's the idea that if you burn all the books in the world, the only books that would have the same info in them as people began to re-record their knowledge would be books about science, while religious books, on the other hand, would look very different. It's really sticking it to those Christians, right? Well, no, not at all. We live in reality, not in fairyland. We can just imagine anything. This isn't a place of multiple universes and what-ifs. Like science fiction, it makes a great movie, but a poor foundation for a worldview. And here, in reality, that particular experiment has already been done. At some point in humanity's past, we had no books. And look what we ended up with. We ended up with humanity's collective literary works. It's just a deflection. It's like, look how clever I am. And really, I feel like it's just getting back into discussing the ratio of unicorns to leprechauns. Now, in my experience, I've often found that those who push rationality and evidence the hardest are often the most irrational and evidence-free. For instance, there's this atheist named Peter Atkins, and he said there's literally nothing that God could ever do to convince him to not be an atheist. That's not skeptical, that's cynical. He simply doesn't want to believe, and he just outright admits it. So he's one of those people making a categorical statement expressing belief in disbelief, which we talked about earlier. That's incompatible with the scientific method. That's not a rational or evidence-based mentality. So look, when I say the words dogma or doctrine or orthodoxy, you'd probably assume I was talking about Christianity, right? Or maybe a different religion. But actually, those same words also describe the worldview of scientific atheism. Right? I'm not just making this up. Let's look at the definitions. Dogma is defined as a set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. Doctrine is defined as a belief or set of beliefs held and taught by a church, political party, or other group. Orthodoxy is defined as authorized or generally accepted theory, doctrine, or practice. Now, if you define religion, as Google's dictionary does, as a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance, then given the dogma, given the doctrine, given the orthodoxy, it'd be pretty absurd, actually, to argue that scientific atheism isn't religious in nature. So, in my mind, scientific atheism is definitely rated R for religious. So, Dawkins, rated R. Harris, rated R. Dennett, rated R. All the new atheists, they're rated R for religious, due to the dogma, doctrine, orthodoxy, and the pursuit to which they ascribe supreme importance. So if you're basing your worldview on what they say, I think you might have to confront the fact that you could be a religious person without even realizing it. 
Because if you come up to me and you're like, Chris, I'm not religious. I'm a materialist. Then I'm going to refer you back to the dictionary definitions and be like, are you sure? <laughs> it's not just me, right? In Giving Up Darwin, Gelertner puts it like this. Darwinism is no longer just a scientific theory, but the basis of a worldview and an emergency replacement religion for the many troubled souls who need one. Those are not my words. Those are the words of a Yale professor. Now, in a video interview, which I'll link up down in the description, Glarnter says this, Intelligent design is widely dismissed in my world of academia as some sort of theological put-up job. It's an absolutely serious scientific argument. In fact, it's the first and most obvious and intuitive one that comes to mind. It's got to be dealt with intellectually not by the bigotry, the anti-religious bigotry in the United States and in the West generally. So intelligent design, what is that? Is it biblical creationism? No. As Meyer, one of the guys who I've quoted extensively in this podcast says, the case for intelligent design isn't an interpretation or deduction from the scriptural text. It's an inference from biological evidence. So did you catch that? People who advocate for what's become known as intelligent design aren't arriving at the conclusion that there's a designer behind the universe by reading the Bible. What they're doing is looking at the natural world and saying, hey, based on what we're seeing, maybe design is the best explanation. That's intelligent design. And you've been hearing today from some people that are in that intelligent design sphere. <laughs> of course, Christians like myself latch onto that and are like, cool, that's compatible. So if you challenge Darwinism intellectually, the academic community at large is likely to shun you, and you're likely to be met with bitter, fundamental, outraged, maybe even violent rejection, because to them, Darwinism has passed beyond scientific argument, as Glarnter puts it. But nonetheless, like I told you at the beginning of the podcast, my thing is, question everything sincerely, because the truth will never mind. It's the truth. In my experience, it's actually the people that mind questions being brought up sincerely that you got to kind of watch out for. In this instance, maybe I'm talking about the academic establishment, but I'm also talking about like Christian parents too. Whether atheists or Christian, some people are just driven by fear because they're used to their way of life and they don't want to even think about, well, what if I need to challenge some kind of assumption? But I'm sitting here telling you, the truth will never mind. I mean, in the Bible, Jesus asks questions all the time of people, not because he wouldn't know the answer, but because it's a way to get people to open up within their own assumptions. Questions are important. So here's Meyer again. So now we have post-neo-Darwinian mechanisms trying to account for things that the Darwinian mechanism doesn't account for. Darwin was asking invaluable questions, but he got it wrong in the broad sense. Darwinists are trying to explain something very, very complex in terms of bottom-up, undirected processes. And yet what we see in life, complex miniature machines, complex information processing systems, digital code, these are things that bear the hallmark of mind. And they suggest a top-down rather than bottom-up approach. Still Meyer here. So I'm sure people committed to a materialistic view of things will continue to generate bottom-up explanations. But I think we're in a new day where we're looking at life in light of our own high-tech digital computing technologies and realizing these systems bear the hallmarks of design. And people are saying, maybe we start to look at life differently. And I think looking at it from a bottom-up Darwinian approach is holding science back. Some of our guys were the first people to predict that non-coding regions in the genome previously identified as junk by the Neo-Darwinians are in fact importantly functional. 
And so looking at life as a designed system is actually yielding insights into how life works. Again, that was Meyer. So I think that's actually a pretty good spot to wrap up part one here of the podcast. There's so much more we could get into, but at least that's a peek or a glimpse into why I feel like I can't personally embrace Darwinian or even neo-Darwinian evolution or atheism. All right, is, uh, is this the time where we would have like an intermission? Should I play some music, put the theme music back on so you can go have a break, bathroom break, grab some more snacks, that kind of thing? Or should we just get into it? I'm just going to get into it because you can pause it. So here we are in part two of this one special episode. And in this part, I'm going to discuss some of my own crazy experience within Christianity while also reviewing a few of the more common objections to Christianity and why they haven't dissuaded me personally. And let me just kick it off like this. Just as the physical universe seems to have been finely tuned to support human life, so also does my own personal universe appear to have been finely tuned in order to support spiritual life. Like perhaps you can, I can look back and trace a progression of major events in my life that have led to me being the person that I am today. Many of those events were pleasant, but just like anybody, many also weren't. Still, I'd say I mostly like who I am today, and if you subtracted all the negative experiences from my past, then arguably I wouldn't be the person that I am today, and I wouldn't want that. So one experience in particular ended up being surprisingly unpleasant and a lot less fulfilling than I had originally hoped it might be. But nonetheless, it did end up being completely transformative, at least in the ways that it helped me shape my worldview. That experience was being hired by the quote-unquote church, a.k.a. one of the larger Christian denominations. Now, while it's true that this ended up being a negative experience for me, if I had never worked for this church, then I definitely would have been a much more ignorant person as a result. It's like Neo and Morpheus with the red and the blue pill. Do you want the truth, even if it's bitter and not what you wanted or expected, or do you want the blissful ignorance? Well, what would you choose? So one thing I knew coming out of college, and this makes a lot of sense now that I'm a YouTuber, is that I wanted to connect with and interact with a lot of people on a big scale in some way. And so that desire, combined with my innate entrepreneurial nature, saw me start a short-lived business or two before I was even out of college. So before I ended up working for that church, I'd already been dabbling in the music industry, which kind of started by doing some free design work out of my dorm room for some of my favorite indie rappers. But in time, I bought and then ran and then later resold a national music talent search competition, which sounds fancy, but it was no American Idol. And, even, and after that, I even messed around with maybe starting up my own music label, and I was kind of looking at bands to, to sign and promote, and which actually was kind of bizarre because I remember having a phone conversation with this duo of guys, one of which had been one of my childhood heroes, Zom on MTV, and I had found this video where his lyrics were just not cool, not something that I wanted to endorse. And so he called me up, and I'm sitting there having to tell this dude who was my ex-hero, like, I can't work with you. And so that was kind of the end of that. But at some point, when I was all excited about the music industry, and it was shortly after I interviewed the guy who started Pandora Radio, actually, for my blog at the time, I found myself making a presentation about the importance of music and culture to this church group, where I was basically listened to in this meeting, but then ignored. So... Everybody walked out except for this one guy who'd been listening, 
and he stayed on after I gave my presentation. He asked some questions, showed some interest, and we got to talking a little more. And we actually really hit it off. And he ended up hiring me to work in his department. And he remains one of my best friends to this day. But the job that I got hired for had nothing to do with my passion at the time, which was music. But instead, it was a design job, which made sense because that's what I had studied at college, design. Unfortunately for me, the lady who was in charge of accounting at this particular office constantly seemed to be going out of her way to make my life as miserable as possible. For one simple reason, she disliked my boss. So because she didn't like him, she naturally wasn't going to like anyone that he hired. And one of the ways that she took it out on us and on the department was to make sure that my paycheck was as small as possible. Needless to say, while I was working at that job, I wasn't exactly dining like a king. Now, before I took this job, I thought, what better place to make a positive impact on the world than by working for a church organization? <laughs> well, that grouchy lady in accounting was my first clue that people whose salaries are funded by tithe dollars aren't necessarily kind, caring, compassionate, or Christ-like. So it didn't take too long for me to realize that I didn't really fit in with the majority of the people in this organization. So fairly often over the next few years, I remember thinking to myself, what have I gotten into here? You know, have you ever been in that kind of a situation where it's like, man, before I didn't have much money, you know, doing independent music stuff. And so it's like, here's a paycheck. It's not the greatest paycheck, but it's not, I'm not passionate about the people really, or the mission of this thing, but it's a paycheck. Have you ever been there? Maybe you haven't. I don't know. But this was a group of people who felt that they had a message that the world needed to hear. And they were going about trying to tell it in ways that seemed bizarre or just out of touch. And frankly, sometimes just kind of embarrassing. So I knew that I didn't really resonate with the workplace, but I just didn't have the sense to quit. So after a while, I got recruited by another branch of this denomination, a different office, under the pretense of doing some design work only to be told once I'd actually moved to another state that actually, no, they wanted me to be the full-time IT director, which I was insanely unqualified for and not at all excited about. Because look, having people yell at me to fix their printer or computer problems when really I knew nothing more than they did about their PCs and the network and everything, for sure made for a miserable day-to-day -day experience. But at least they were paying me a living wage. Like, I could live off of it. It was fairly respectable. So I guess that's probably why I continue to put up with it. I remember one time getting called into the guy who was basically the CEO of this office, into his office, and there was the guy who had handled IT stuff before, who they had been outsourcing to, who now I was in charge of all the stuff he had set up and stuff, sitting there at the table with the CEO, and he's just tearing into me. Well, Chris is not qualified. Chris can't do this. Chris, what, what about this? Do you know about this? And of course, I don't know what he's talking about. And just made me look like a fool. And I felt just awful in front of this CEO. And he knew I didn't know anything. I was a designer. Anyways, stuff like that continued to happen. And the CEO guy, he did at least apologize, but still not fun. So while I was at this office, kind of miserable, bored out of my gourd, that's actually when I started a new blog called Daily Tech. But for this one, I decided to write about something that I was a little more passionate about, kind of an escape from my day job. So I chose one of my hobbies, something I really liked, tech. And it's crazy. Within a couple of months, the blog really took off and it was already getting like hundreds of thousands of views. 
And for several years, its main claim to fame was this yearly top 100 list of the best new websites that I came out with. I guess this is probably where I really honed my curation and organizing abilities whenever you see a list of apps or something on the channel now. Because all year, I would find cool websites and store it away, and then I would spend days ranking them. And, and anyways, it was a whole big thing. It was during the listicle craze started by Mashable. And I'll never forget, the guy across the hall from me, he came over. He was actually the youth director for this office. And he knew about it. Everyone in the office knew about Daily Tech, Chris's blog. And he was like, I don't get it. Why does anyone care what you have to say? And it was kind of like a hurtful thing. But I thought in the back of my head, well, they do. So it's like he could have done something similar, I guess. But he didn't. And I did. <laughs> but whatever. And it's funny. I actually still have people ask me to this day. Uh, when's the next top 100 websites list coming out? So anyways, while the blog was simmering as a side project, I ended up actually getting fired from this office because apparently I was told the budget had gotten too tight. It's like, wow, who would have thought the first guy to go would be the designer who was asked to become an IT director? I mean, I wasn't a good IT director. I didn't know anything about it. I mean, it makes sense. It's just disappointing. Because after I agreed to get hired there, that's when they told me they had hired somebody else. Oh, we're just going to give him all the design stuff. You can focus on this. And it's like, I, I don't want to do that. That doesn't work good for me. <laughs> and it didn't work good for them either. So after that, even though by now you would think that I would have known better, I ended up getting hired by another branch of the church, this time by a guy who kind of thought of himself as a little mini Christian celebrity. I would say kind of like a pseudo celebrity and who I always have thought just loved nothing more than attention. So at this job, it just turned out I was enemy number one among the management, but I tried to stick it out because I'd taken the job on the premise that a particular idea that I had might actually find some funding here. But little did I know that none of my ideas were ever going to be taken seriously by this group, mainly because pseudo-celebrities' ego didn't leave room for anybody else's thoughts or opinions. And I certainly had no interest in making any of their ideas a reality. I don't know, maybe you've been in a similar situation, right? Everybody's had a boss that they didn't like or didn't get along with. But anyways, by the time I got fired by this place, yeah, it'd be safe to say I was pretty emotionally and mentally scarred by this organization or denomination or institution, however you want to refer to it. But anyways, while the boss is sitting there firing me, as per his usual behavior behind closed doors, he wasn't sitting there using words that a pastor would normally use in a sermon. We'll just put it that way. So after he was done saying what he wanted to say, his number two pipes up and tries to intimidate me into signing a non-disclosure agreement in order to get any severance pay. He's patronizing on the one hand, oh, you're going to go on to do good things. And then on the other hand, he's sitting there telling me, your severance pay is going to depend on your attitude. Like, what? I'm not even sure that's legal to have said that. But anyways... Meanwhile, in the back of my head, I'm thinking like, how am I going to pay for stuff? You know, I got to have a roof over my head and need some food to eat. How am I going to pay for this stuff? How am I going to support my family? Needless to say, I signed nothing. And I also had the presence of mind to hit record on the voice recorder app on my Apple Watch, which was something I got really used to doing there whenever I was about to hear something that I couldn't believe I was about to hear, which happened a lot. For instance, the guy in charge of that place was really into guns, which I don't have a problem with. But one time he told this large group of employees that he'd, quote, only shoot a burglar as much as Jesus would. But he was trying to be funny, and everybody else in the room was laughing. I mean, I have recordings of his number two saying several disturbing things. Like once they were planning these evangelistic meetings, 
and he revealed his true goal was the following. And this is a direct quote. When the meetings are over, I want us to begin to bring them into the ministry, and eventually we begin to ask for money. Absolutely. End quote. Just disturbing stuff. I got another audio recording from the same guy, which again is the guy who was trying to get me to sign that non-disclosure agreement, saying, quote, we don't need drugs and slang in the church, end quote. And that was when he was talking about the kind of people that he didn't want showing up at this organization's evangelistic meetings. I'll just be honest with you. It's hard for me to this day to not hate these people. And I know that's a strong word, and I'm just being 100% transparent honest with you. That's a struggle for me. But when I think back about it, my main consolation is that they were so comically bad at accomplishing their main goal, which was basically telling people that they existed and trying to get attention for the boss, that only the tiniest sliver of a tiny little sliver of the actual population will ever know that they even exist. And even then, I mean, most of the people that showed up their events were just diehard cult-like fans of this pseudo-celeb. What strikes me is that for people who claim to represent a creator, they were by far the least creative people I've ever met. Just creativity was nowhere to be found. I mean, in retrospect, the main work that was being done by the management and the lower tier employees at that third office basically amounted to just trying to boost the organization's revenue along with the boss's self-esteem, which are two activities I very much doubt they'll ever make any progress towards. So yeah, I didn't exactly get along with the management at that last office, but I think the straw that finally broke the camel's back, because I was fired shortly thereafter, but I'm sure they would have come up with a number of different reasons, was when I was blamed for tanking the pet project of the boss's wife. So she had dreamed up this insane piece of fiction wherein non-church members somehow desperately needed what the pseudo-celebrity was peddling. And the organization had gone so far as to hire some actors and a small production company to act it out and record it. So I'm sitting there at somebody's house where they're going to shoot this thing, and the main actor never shows up on the day of the shoot. So the guy who was my direct supervisor is pressuring me over and over and over again to step in and act out this ridiculous script, which I neither liked or thought was truthful or realistic in any way, shape, or form. So I'm saying, no, no, not interested, don't want to do it, keep getting pressured. And eventually I caved, I'm sorry to say. But then afterwards, <laughs> after they had shot a couple of scenes, I talked about it with my wife and we just decided I don't want to be in this thing. I don't want to appear. I don't want my likeness representing the ideas of the crazy boss lady or the organization. I don't want my face on it. So I'm not sure how much money they spent on it, but to them it was a lot, I'm sure. And of course, when I said I don't want my face in it, then I'm being blamed for not being a team player. So a couple days after that, at the end of the day, after I had just finished helping carry up this really heavy couch with a couple other people up several flights of stairs to the boss's office, I heard the boss say, should we do this now? And then he called me into his office and I got fired. They didn't fire me before I moved the heavy couch up all the stairs. After. Just one last indignity. So just as a quick side note, after I got fired for the second time, that's when my wife and I decided to take our savings and then just go full time with daily tech. It was kind of like, it's either now or never. And it was a struggle. It was just like starting any business would be. But by far, it was the best decision we ever made. One of the best. 
Because now, years later, after we've shifted from blogging to actually creating videos, so in 2012, we started the blog. In 2015, switched to videos. And now, obviously, we've expanded into podcasting and other things. Now we have more financial freedom than we ever had. And now I'm very much the captain of my own boat. Also, I feel like it's kind of relevant to just point out the guy who fired me from that last job, he's got a YouTube channel as part of his thing. And his videos average like 200 views per video. But the guy he fired, me, went on to start a YouTube channel and amass over 40 million views in just a couple years. So maybe the wrong person was in charge there. The really sad thing for me, it, it really, I, I think this is a tragedy, is that there were couples who collectively have forked over millions of dollars to this guy, to his organization, and to other organizations like his, in their wills. I mean, can you imagine a brand spending millions of dollars on an ad campaign to just get a few hundred views per video? I mean, this is a media company. They should be good at this stuff if people are forking over millions of dollars. It's stuff like that when I look back. I just, ugh, I can't believe it. It almost seems criminal. So, nah, I mean, working for this organization in these three different offices, it wasn't a fun experience, wasn't positive. But I do want to point out, there were, of course, some genuinely awesome and smart and caring people who I crossed paths with during my employment there. And there was other people I ran into that were there like me, like for the paycheck, like and they didn't know what else to do. You know, pastors who kind of had a muzzle on, they didn't think like the organization, but they, what were they going to say? You know, they just end up getting fired. <laughs> so I think the lesson is follow your passion in your heart and your mind rather than the paycheck. That just doesn't end well. But I mean, I remember at the first office looking around in a meeting of about 100 people and there was only like seven people that I had any professional respect for. That's 7%. And I think that number decreased as I went from that first office to the second one, and again, decreased from the second to the third. By the third, there was nobody that I respected. Now, I know somebody out there is like, wow, that sounds really harsh. But look, I've just barely scratched the tip of the iceberg, right, with all the stories and things I could tell. But I'm happy to say that that particular group of unhealthy people that I somehow got entangled with with that music pitch way back in the day, they aren't representative of all Christians. Thank goodness. Not by a long shot. It is fair to say, however, that just like many atheists are as intellectually lazy as that biology student that I mentioned earlier appeared to be, many Christians aren't Christians for the right reasons. I feel like many, and emphasis on many, Christians are indeed Christians out of fear or guilt or both, or perhaps intellectual laziness, yeah. But I think just as many materialists or atheists, for instance, are intellectually lazy or have been bullied into certain beliefs as well, and haven't had the courage to push back either. But look, to say that some Christians are hypocritical, it's like saying some professional basketball players are Lakers. Well, yeah, but that's kind of the whole point of Christianity on one level. It's like nobody is perfect except for this one person, Jesus. And I hope it doesn't come as news to you that there are many genuine Christians who are the real deal. Whereas the organization that I worked for for a little bit there would often ramp up their community outreach programs as a form of marketing ahead of a big event that they'd be holding in a given city. 
I mean, I've run into several Christians who just help people out because it's the right thing to do, regardless of whether or not anyone notices. And oftentimes the wider world doesn't notice. And I understand there's atheists that do nice things, Buddhists that do nice things. It's not just Christians out there doing nice things. I understand. Let's take a moment and clap for everybody who's doing something nice that nobody's noticing. But it's the real ones who aren't shouting it from the rooftops. But one thing that my experience with this particular denomination definitely did make me do was just step back and rethink my commitment to that form of organized religion. And even that, that right there caused some people I know, even family members, to question my commitment to God. Going to church or belonging to a particular denomination or endorsing certain pastors or figures has become the most important thing to certain people. Those things have become like idols to those people, ironically. And I'll just be honest, it, it seriously, it really hurts me when people I have known in the past hear my story, hear everything that happened, and then ask me if I lost my faith in God. Because they associate me not supporting this particular organization, which, like Reagan said of the Democratic Party, I really feel like they left me. But they associate that in their mind with me not being a Christian anymore. To them, it's the same thing. It's unbelievable. If anything, I'm more worried about these people and their legalism. But make no mistake, yeah, I am a Christian. And to be downright honest, my faith in God has never been stronger, despite all the idiocy and the dysfunction that I encountered. I mean, thankfully, I've grown a lot as a person, spiritually, intellectually, and in countless other ways since all of this stuff happened. In the meantime, I mean, I've spent a lot of my free time in the years since that last time I got fired examining the claims that Christianity makes, along with the claims made by other worldviews. It's really become something of a hobby for me. I actually enjoy it. I mean, I tune into debates, I read a ton of books, I listen to audiobooks and podcasts, I read articles. Basically, I just try to absorb as much as I can in pursuit of the truth and having a better understanding of the world that I find myself in. I mean, I've even read textbooks. I get deep into it. Like, as much as I love tech, I also love absorbing history and philosophy and trying to understand other people's points of view. And that's something that clearly makes certain other Christians that I used to know very uncomfortable. Because a lot of them, they just stumbled into their worldview, as opposed to actively questioning whether or not what they believed seemed to be the best explanation for things. And they just kind of locked down to the point where they don't even want to know what people outside of their sphere have to say about anything. It's sad, honestly. At least to me, because again, my point of view is that the truth is the truth, whether or not you question it. So you might as well ask your sincere questions, because the truth isn't going to mind. Regardless, I think most of the time, you can only make sense of a particular segment of your life or journey at the end of that segment or journey, rather than at the beginning. I am kind of leading up to a point here, and that is, as you can tell, I'm really the last person who you need to preach to about Christianity and hypocrisy. Obviously, I've lived right in the midst of it. And if I'm honest, I've been plenty hypocritical my own self, which again, just kind of underscores the main point of Christianity. Humans aren't perfect. Still, the issue of hypocrisy, it's one of those things that people sometimes bring up as a reason not to be a Christian. Because why would you want to emulate someone who does bad things, either to you 
or to other people. Some supposed Christians do things that you wouldn't want to emulate. I mean, a lot of the people that I worked with in those jobs, I've looked at and thought, how can they be reading the same Bible as me? (laughs) And maybe somebody's thought that about me. I don't know. I was thinking it right now. Thankfully, though, Christians are out to emulate Christ and not other people or Christians. And for me, when I hit up the Gospels and check out how Jesus lived and talked and acted, then I'm like, oh, yeah, he was all right. And in just a minute, we're going to get into whether or not I think the Bible is a trustworthy or historically accurate document or library in a way, because it's really a collection of several books. But my experience with churchgoers and administrators, both good and bad aside, hypocrisy is not unique to Christianity. There's hypocritical people in any religion or hypocrites that hold any number of worldviews. Being hypocritical is kind of a human thing which is not an excuse in any way. It's just a fact. I guess if you feel like you're perfect, you could raise your hand right now. No one will see you. No one will believe you either. But at the end of the day, literally anyone can say they're a Christian. But just because someone says they're a Christian, that doesn't mean that they're going to act like Christ. And also at the end of the day, I guess if actions do indeed speak louder than words, I'm an advocate for just letting Jesus speak for himself. I'm an advocate of letting the red letters interpret and make sense of the black letters. And if you're like, what is Chris babbling about? Then maybe check out Matthew 7, if you haven't before, because it has some interesting things to say about hypocrisy. So long story short, as painful as my own personal experiences have been, Christian hypocrisy isn't a reason for me not to be on board with Christ, even if I'm not so on board with certain aspects of organized religion at the moment. I've really been loving this song lately from Social Club Misfits called Enough, featuring the bro Austin French, which has these lyrics. And I'm not saying that you need to love these lyrics too or adopt them as your own or anything. I'm just saying they've been meaningful to me lately. It goes, lately my prayers have been sounding more like complaints, trying to fight insecurity while balancing faith. Nobody ever changed the world by playing it safe. When you're afraid is the only time that a man can be brave. Even on this broken road, I know that God's in control. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was. And especially that last line, that really applies to me in so many ways. All right then, Chris, why Christianity in the first place? Aren't all religions basically the same? Well, that's a great question, and I can feel where you're coming from if you're asking. But I got to be real with you. If you're asking that, you definitely haven't checked into more than one religion, because I would say exactly the opposite. Rather than all religions being fundamentally the same and only superficially different, I'd say all religions are fundamentally different and only superficially the same. We talked about this in the first half of the podcast, but truth, by definition, is exclusive. And yeah, Christianity makes some exclusive truth claims, but so do other worldviews. Islam, for one, and Buddhism, as a second example. Scientific materialism definitely says it's the only way to understand reality. But like Buddha was born a Hindu and ended up rejecting two of Hinduism's fundamental paths. Hence Buddhism being a separate thing apart from Hinduism. Because fundamentally, they're not the same. I mean, even the golden rule isn't the same in Confucianism as it is in the words of Jesus. Judaism isn't Jainism or Sikhism. They're just different. All religions are not the same. But then you could be like, well, Chris... Have you seriously explored every single religion on the face of the planet to the fullest extent in order to fully compare everything out there? And I'd be like, no, 
but I have a great shortcut. Look, every religion or worldview out there fits into three buckets. Bucket one, only physical reality exists. Bucket two, only God exists. Bucket three, both God and physical reality exist. Bucket one, that whole stuff like materialism or anything similar. Bucket two, it's really kind of a catch-all, but includes things like New Age spiritualism. Bucket three contains things like the Judeo-Christian worldview, among others. So actually, you can fairly easily evaluate anything you run into by stashing them in the appropriate bucket and then asking your four big questions having to do with origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And then you can see what syncs up out of each bucket empirically, logically, and experientially, right? It has to cohere. It has to make sense with what you've experienced in life and logically, and there's got to be some evidence behind it. Now, at the end of the first part of this podcast, we already kind of touched on a more scientific way of arriving at the Judeo-Christian worldview with Stephen Meyer's Return of the God Hypothesis reasoning, but let's assume we hadn't gone there. Someone could say, well, how could Christians possibly be so arrogant to say that all other religions are wrong and that Jesus is the only path to God? And I really like this response by Amy Orr Ewing. She says, often the parable of the elephant is used to illustrate the sheer ignorance of Christianity. It goes something like this. Three blind scribes are touching different parts of an elephant. The one who's holding the tail says, this is a rope. Another one holding the elephant's leg says, this is not a rope. You're wrong. It's a tree. Still another one who's holding the trunk of the elephant says, you're both wrong. It's a snake. And the moral of the story is supposed to be that all religions are like these guys. They each touch different parts of ultimate reality, and therefore, any one of them is arrogant to say that they have the whole truth. But if you take a step back and think about what's being said there, you can see that it's an interesting claim being made. Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, Moses, and the list goes on, they're all blind. But in fact, I, the observer making this pithy statement, can see perfectly. These leaders all had a small perspective, but I'm the one who has the full picture. Now who's being arrogant? It's just as arrogant to say that Buddha and Jesus were wrong in their exclusive claims as it is to say that Jesus is the only way. So the issue is not about who's arrogant, but it's about what's actually true and real. It's an interesting answer. And look, every view excludes something. The person who believes all ways lead to God excludes then the viewpoint of the person who says only one way leads to God. See, everything can't be true because then nothing is true. All right, makes sense, at least to me. And if you're still with me and your head's not spinning, then you might ask the next obvious thing. But Chris, tell me this. How could a good God allow suffering, much less so much suffering, which seems particularly top of mind right now with the outbreak of COVID-19 that the world's facing right now? So how could a good God allow evil? Well, for starters, when you say the word evil, there's this assumption being made, as one of my favorite authors says in his book, The Logic of God, which I'll link up down below. When we assume evil, we assume good. When we assume good, we assume a moral law. And when we assume a moral law, we assume a moral lawgiver. Okay, but why does a moral law necessitate a moral lawgiver? Well, one reason is that every time that question of evil is raised, it's either by a person or about a person, which implicitly assumes that the question is a worthy question. But it's only a worthy question if people have intrinsic worth. And the only reason people have intrinsic worth is that they're creations of one who's of ultimate worth i.e. God. So the question self-destructs for the naturalist or the pantheist. 
the question of the morality of evil or pain is only valid for a theist. And he goes on to say, furthermore, only in Christian theism is love preexistent within the Trinity, which means that love precedes human life and becomes the absolute value for us. Therefore, he goes on to say, and this really gets to the heart of things, love is the supreme ethic. Where there's the possibility of love, there must be the reality of free will. Where there's the reality of free will, there will inevitably be the possibility of sin. Where there's sin, there's a need for a savior. Where there's a savior, there's hope for redemption. Only in the Judeo-Christian worldview does this sequence find its total expression and answer. The story from sin to redemption is only in the gospel with the ultimate provision of a loving God. Again, I'll link it up below. Woo, I've been talking so long, my voice is getting hoarse. Basically, though, if you enjoy the ability to love and enjoy exercising your free will, then, at least in my mind, you've got to come to grips with the reality that only four types of universes could have ever been. One in which this world never existed, and therefore no pain and suffering would ever exist as an extension. One in which people were pre-programmed, like robots, to do only good, which clearly isn't the world we live in. One in which there's no such thing as good or evil, aka an immoral world. Or the world and reality we actually find ourselves in, which is a world where there's a possibility for good and evil to exist. So, you know, that's like the classic Christian answer. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily make you feel better if you find yourself dealing with cancer or the loss of a loved one or something like that. And I've been there. I've felt the numbness of losing somebody close and the void that's there afterward. And it's the worst. No words can express. And just intellectual answers, they don't solve it or fix it or make it feel better maybe they help in some way make sense of things but c.s lewis has a great quote on this in his book the problem of pain he says pain is unmasked unmistakable evil every man knows that something is wrong when he's being hurt we can ignore even pleasure but pain insists upon being attended to god whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience but shouts in our pains it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world And personally, I feel like there's something to that. When something goes wrong in your life, that's when you start to think less about life's luxuries and more about life's necessities. Like what really matters to you when it comes down to it. But I mean, you could also look at pain from a design and decay standpoint. Like if you believe the universe had a non-physical first cause and therefore a designer, and then if you want to buy into Meyer's return to the God hypothesis reasoning, for example, that the Judeo-Christian worldview makes the most sense as a hypothesis, Then you have a designer, and you have sin, this thing that came in and threw a wrench in the design, and then you have decay from that point on, design and decay. That's one way to make sense of everything around you. And I mean, at the moment, everything's not coming up roses with this pandemic. And I feel like I got a sore throat right now. Maybe it's from talking too much or what. I don't like being sick or unhappy any more than the next person. Or having to worry about what if I get that or what if my family gets that. But still, I mean, like I said earlier, I'd rather go through life with some ultimate hope than to feel like everything is ultimately hopeless, especially in trying times like this. Because what is the Christian point of view if not this life isn't all there is? Yeah, people without ultimate hope say YOLO. You only live once. But that's not what Christians are about. Which makes a great segue into talking about miracles. All right, Chris. I guess I can at least see where you're coming from at this point why you're not an atheist, why you're a Christian, what you're saying about hypocrisy and why bad things might happen in the world. But how can you believe 
that the miracles described in the Bible actually happened. Like, Jesus turned water into wine? Seriously? Like, the Red Sea parted? Seriously? Like, Jesus healed people? Seriously? And then died? And then came back to life? Seriously? (laughs) I mean, David Hume, if you're familiar with the guy, said that miracles would be a violation of the laws of nature. But, of course, you gotta remember, Hume didn't believe in cause and effect, so... For him, even formulating laws of nature would have been very difficult to do. Still, this one is really simple for me, but I'm going to come at it from a few different angles here. In my mind, if you can wrap your head around God being the first cause of the universe, then that seems like the biggest, craziest, most complicated miracle of all. Everything else looks like child's play in comparison. And to be honest, I think there's a pretty compelling case presented in the beginning of this podcast for a creator. And I mean, at this point, if you want pause, go back and listen, fine. But I do that all the time. Like if I got a really good audiobook, I'll go back and re-listen like two or three times just to make sure I absorb everything that's there. But seriously though, like if, if God created all physical matter, what's the difference if he changes that matter and how it works? It's just like ordinary run-of-the-mill stuff for a creator. It's like if I create a design in Photoshop, well, I created it, so it's no big deal to manipulate it and change it. Well, that might seem extraordinary to any animal on the planet that's not a human. Heck, it might seem extraordinary to somebody who's 95 years old and didn't grow up with computers. But it's just routine for me as a creative person. So what a human would deem miraculous, whether the parting of the Red Sea or the restoring of sight to the blind or walking on water would merely just be ordinary and routine or maybe even mundane for the creator of the universe. And if the first part of this podcast made any sense to you and you're like, yeah, I could actually see that potentially, that there could be a designer behind the universe, it's, it's done then. You, you don't have to worry about any other quote-unquote miraculous deeds. For me, it just puts to bed any issues I might have had with miracles from an intellectual standpoint which is one of the reasons why I said in the beginning of the podcast that how you think about the beginning of the universe is going to end up affecting everything else downstream. But if you don't like that, let's look at it from a few different angles. So if you're familiar with physics at all, then you'll be familiar with quantum tunneling. Quantum tunneling, or just tunneling, is the quantum mechanical phenomenon where a subatomic particle passes through a potential barrier. It's something physicists know happens on a subatomic level. It seems impossible, but it happens. In fact, quantum tunneling is a big part of how sunlight makes it to our planet and supports life here. You know, and just because you've likely never heard of it before this podcast, if you're a non-physicist, that doesn't mean it's not a real scientific phenomenon. Which is to say, just because you can't explain something or because humans can't explain something, that doesn't mean there's not a scientific way for it to happen. Of course, if God's responsible for creating the physical universe, then God's responsible for the physical laws of the universe. I mean, scientists are discovering new things about the universe all the time. But the creator of the universe already knows everything there is to know about it. Just like the creators of a Tesla know everything about it, even though I don't. So when you read about Jesus suddenly appearing to the disciples in a room, like in Luke 24, and the disciples are scared because it's like they saw a ghost, and you're like, well, how on earth would that seriously be possible? then you can think of something like quantum tunneling and reasonably come to grips with the idea that there must be a scientific explanation for every miracle ever talked about in the Bible. 
Now, I'm not saying that quantum tunneling is responsible for what happened in Loop 24. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying particles passing through potential barriers is a real thing in physics. So potentially, the creator of the universe passing through a wall really shouldn't surprise anybody. But we're not done yet. Let's talk about the virgin birth. So a guy named John Lennox, who's a mathematician, well, actually, he's Professor Emeritus of Mathematics at the University of Oxford, he was debating a famous atheist named Peter Singer a while back. And Lennox asked Singer this question, why are we here? And Singer's response was this, we can assume that somehow in the primeval soup, we got collections of molecules that became self-replicating. And I don't think we need any miraculous or mysterious explanation, end quote. Yeah. That was his real answer. Somehow, molecules in the primeval soup became self-replicating, and we don't need any miraculous or mysterious explaining. Or here's how the late Stephen Hawking put it. The universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there's something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists. Why we exist. Now, if that doesn't sound like faith in a virgin birth, the virgin birth of the universe in this case, I don't know what does. Physical matter doesn't normally materialize in the human experience out of nothing, whether we're talking about a baby named Jesus or an infant universe. I'm sorry. I mean, to me, it's like farcical for atheists to say Christians are crazy for believing in the virgin birth when they believe in the exact same thing, physical matter materializing out of nowhere. How is that different? Uh... This, like other things in this podcast, I'm going to have to cut short. I could talk about it a lot longer, but I'll just end this section on miracles with another good quote from C.S. Lewis. Actually, a couple quotes. Quote number one from God in the Dock. We have not, in fact, proved that science excludes miracles. We have only proved that the question of miracles, like innumerable other questions, excludes laboratory treatment. And quote number two from Joyful Christian. Omnipotence means power to do all that is intrinsically possible not to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, God, but not nonsense. You know, because people are like, hey, can God create a rock that's too heavy for God to hold up? It's nonsense. But let's move on. Now, there's no way I'm going to have time to hit every single objection anybody's ever brought up about Christianity, but I got time to talk to you about a couple more. And then if you really want to keep digging after that into how Chris became the Chris that you know, and to believe like he does, then again, I'll link up some resources down below that I've found interesting. So what about the Bible? Like, didn't humans just put it together? How could someone claim that it's a divine document? I mean, humans wrote it for crying out loud. How can it be trusted? And what about the four gospels in particular? Are those reliable? Because Chris, there's a secular Bible scholar out there named Bart Ehrman who really loves to attack the reliability of the Gospels. He sounds pretty confident. So is Bart right or is Bart wrong? Because Chris, Christianity hinges on Jesus. So no Jesus, no Christianity. And if you can't trust what the Bible says about Jesus, then everything else discussed in this podcast was all for nothing, right? Well, okay, no pressure then. But let's get into it. Here's the thing. The Bible is actually unique in that it doesn't claim that every word is perfect, like the Quran, for instance. But what you have here is a book, the Bible, comprised of 66 books by nearly 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, 
that has history, philosophy, and theology inside. Nowhere in the Bible, in all those books, by all those authors, written over all those years, is there a systemic contradiction that's either historically or philosophically or existentially false. Nowhere. It's incredibly coherent. So Bruce Metzger, who is a Princeton Theological Seminary professor, said the Bible is 99.6% historically accurate. I don't know what you know about historical documents, but no other ancient document comes anywhere close. Here's a great quote, too, from a guy named Hans Kung. Lay people are usually unaware that the scrupulous scholarly work achieved by modern biblical criticism, represented by scrupulous academic work over about 300 years, belongs among the greatest intellectual achievements of the human race. The Bible is far and away the most studied book in world literature. It's saying the work done by scholars about the Bible belongs amongst the greatest intellectual achievements of the human race. Scrupulous scholarly study of the Bible has been going on for over 300 years. But you can ask yourself, though, how do historians look at the Bible? Well, they put it through some tests, okay? Like the bibliographic test or the internal test or the external test. So a guy named Andy Bannister had a great article on this. And what he says is the bibliographic test looks at the ancient manuscripts of the Bible and asks whether or not the text of the Bible we have today is the same as the original. And the simple answer is yeah. There are thousands upon thousands of ancient manuscripts of the Bible dating from the early 2nd century down to the Middle Ages. So when you compare what we have for the Bible with, say, what we have in terms of manuscripts for other important works of antiquity, think Plato or Thucydides, it's striking. For the Bible, we have 5,000 Greek manuscripts, hundreds of papyri. It's like Lexus. What's the plural of Lexus? Lexi? Almost 350 Syriac copies, most dating to the 400s. And on top of that, virtually the entire New Testament could be reproduced from quotations in the early church fathers. 32,000 such quotations exist before the Council of Nicaea, 8325, for example. And he goes on to say, too, what about the historian's second test, the internal test? That's the test that asks whether or not we can determine whether or not the document we have before us was written by eyewitnesses. So when it comes to the Bible, especially the New Testament, things get very interesting. We have multiple authors writing about the life of Christ. Critical scholars would count at least six. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and probably also Q, which would be a collection of sayings of Jesus that Matthew and Luke might have referred to. Furthermore, these sources are all very early. Most scholars date the Gospels to the 60s, 70s, and 80s AD, although some argue that Mark especially is much earlier. British New Testament scholar James Crossley, who I'd note is not a Christian, believes Mark was written in the late 30s or the early 40s. That's within a decade of Jesus. Finally, there's the external evidence for the Bible, in particular, archaeology. Time and again, archaeology has confirmed that the writers of the Bible text knew what they were talking about. Archaeology endorses the biblical text at many points. Okay, now here's how former Yale professor of archaeology Miller Burroughs puts it. On the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. Archaeology has in many cases refuted the views of modern critics. End quote. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out there's this dream of a statue described in Daniel, which is a book of the Bible, 
which accurately predicts world history hundreds of years before Jesus' time. Now, there's only two possibilities here. Either it really predicted which countries were going to do what in coming years in incredibly accurate detail, or it would have had to have been written after the fact. Now, there's too much detail in there for there to be any other possibility. It's one of those. Now, I personally have done a deep dive into historical critical scholarship on this too, and leading skeptics like to say that this was written after the Maccabean Revolt, but that just holds no water for me. Look, I read a really long and boring book about the arguments for and against everything in the book of Daniel called Symposium on Daniel, Introductory and Exegetical Studies. And for one thing, there's nothing introductory about it. That baby is exhaustive. But this is just to say, I'm not the kind of person who's like, oh, my parents told me this was true, so I'm just going to go with that. No, I'm the type of person who methodically, over years of time, painstakingly explores ideas that I come across. And to me, the scholarship points, sometimes even the historical critical scholarship, points to the case for the historical reliability of Daniel. The conclusion for me is the book of Daniel is solid, untouchable even, like to the point where I would feel like anyone rejecting it has some kind of agenda. It's written in a really interesting structure called chiastic structure. I mean, if you thought ancient writers were dumb or didn't know what they were doing, that's not the case. I mean, sometimes scholarly works are boring, and I get that, but there's so much you don't pick up on when you just read through something like a regular book. And Daniel's a good example of that. It's just absolutely fascinating, just from a literary perspective. All right, Chris, but what about the secular biblical scholar Bart Ehrman? He says there's lots of problems with the four Gospels. Yeah, he absolutely does, and I've looked at what Bart said. And I've watched what Bart has to say in debates. And I'll admit, the first time I heard Bart speak, I was like, oh dang, what if what he's saying has some truth? Because he was bringing up these potential challenges that I'd never run into before. And his assertions would be absolutely devastating to Christianity, if they were true. So I did my thing. I gave Bart a fair shake because, as you know, my thing is, sincerely ask the hard questions because the truth's not going to mind. Because it's the truth. And you know what? As I dug into what Bart was saying, I found out that some of what he's saying is just not true, period. Now, in this podcast, which is already super long and is killing my voice, I'm not going to have time to go into this point by point, into everything that Bart says. But let me say this. I eventually ran into a book by someone who was once one of Bart's students that absolutely decimated every assertion Bart makes about the Gospels. Uh, the book is called The Case for Jesus, not The Case for Christ, which is much more well-known and which I've actually never read or had any interest in reading. And uh, yeah, I'll link it up below if you want to check it out. But the book talks about how Bart almost made this student lose his faith until he started digging into what Bart was actually saying. And I have to say, I've never read a book and come away more convinced that something was wrong, that something being what Bart was saying, and that something else was so solid, in this case, the historicity and reliability of the Gospels. It answers in a really nice and thorough and thoughtful way all the big questions that Bart likes to bring up, such as, were the Gospels really anonymous? Are the Gospels folklore or biographies? Were the Gospels written too late to be reliable? And what about the so-called lost Gospels? Did Jesus claim to be God? Is Jesus divine in all four Gospels or just in John? Did Jesus fulfill the Jewish prophecies of the Messiah? Why was Jesus crucified? And notice, Bart doesn't question whether Jesus lived or was crucified. What's the evidence for the resurrection, etc., etc.? 
Again, just too much stuff to even have time to begin to cover right here. But if you have serious doubts about the Bible in general or about the Gospels themselves, I can't recommend any book more highly. I mean, I went in saying, maybe Bart's got some points here that got to be dealt with. And I finished the book with more confidence in the Bible than I've ever had. I'd say reading that book, it was one of the major events in my Christian experience. In fact, I recommended the book to somebody and they only read the first chapter and then they paused because they thought the book was about not believing in the Bible. Because it talks about in the first chapter, the students' doubts that Bart had sowed before getting into the actual refuting of Bart point by point. And to me, it's just all really interesting and fascinating stuff. So if you read it, don't stop at chapter one. Read the whole thing. Now, down in the description, I'm also going to link up a podcast episode. Actually, there's two parts by a former trial lawyer who goes through whether the evidence for Jesus' resurrection would hold up to courtroom level scrutiny. It's very interesting. I just wanted to make sure to mention that here. But one thing I've asked myself is who would be willing to die to be killed in some gruesome manner, like beheading, for instance? Who would be willing to die like that for a lie? And why would so many people be willing to die for something false? Like if Jesus hadn't resurrected, why would so many people be willing to pin everything and die about it? I wouldn't want to die for a lie. So why would so many early Christians die for something unless they really, truly believed that what they say they saw, they saw? It's just something to think about. Also, I'll just cite here one book that's part of my collection that is actually a textbook on the history of Christianity called The Story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez. And it's absolutely enormous and exhaustive. And I'm doubting anyone listening to this is actually going to take the time to go through it. Although there is an audio book form, which is pretty interesting. If you're bored with Netflix, you could definitely go through it. Because, you know, that's more accessible, audiobook. You know, it's history. It's fascinating. But it's a huge textbook. There's two parts. The Early Church and the Dawn of the Reformation, which basically goes through the start of the Christian church and then what happened to the apostles to the best of human knowledge after, and things like how the New Testament was put together, and lots more. And then there's a second part that covers the Reformation to the present day as well. Just lots of interesting, surprising stuff in there that most Christians probably have absolutely no idea about. But I just mention it here because you can see, if you look through history, that the New Testament actually came together very naturally. So I think you should reserve judgment on it until you've actually looked into how it was put together. And that's a great resource. Uh, so that's another thing I'll link up down in the description that I couldn't recommend more highly. Actually, I have the audiobook and the digital version. That's how interesting I found it. Woo, I'm slowing down, but I'm going to take time to address one final thing just before we wrap this up even though I really wish we could cover so much more. And that is, how could I get behind the idea of a God who's going to punish people for all eternity? Like, isn't that just sadistic? Well, look, a lot of Christians believe that hell is an eternal burning fire. But that's not what I get when I look at the Bible. To me, I read the Bible and it says that sin is a separation from God and that hell is a permanent separation from God, i.e. a person who wouldn't be happy having a relationship with God now certainly wouldn't want to be spending eternity in relation with God then, and thus isn't forced to. But, nor are they forced to live in agony for all of eternity either. Like, let's say you burn a letter in a fireplace. Does the letter burn for all of eternity? No. But yet, is it gone forever? Yeah. So that's kind of an analogy for what I get when I read about hell in the Bible. 
after doing what you might have come to expect after listening to this, my patented Chris deep dive. But whatever a Christian believes about hell, though, their salvation isn't dependent on it. You're not saved, so to speak, based on what you think about hell. But I say, look at America. We have rules, right? Laws, in fact. What happens if you break a law or you get caught? You're held accountable for that. The police arrest your butt and put you in jail, and you go to trial. So you can't have a society without accountability. Not here on this planet. It just doesn't work. So if there were a creator behind the universe, people wouldn't be smarter than that being that created them, right? But even people have rules and laws, and they've created consequences for breaking those rules and laws. So if a creator has rules and laws, then, well, why couldn't or shouldn't there be consequences for breaking those rules and laws? The narrative in the Bible, by the way, isn't that God wants every single person to choose entropy and decay over his grand design. That's not the narrative. It's like a state governor doesn't want the citizens of their state to all go to jail or to get punished or to get the death penalty. No, they're trying to make life in their state as safe and as enjoyable and livable as possible. Some do a better job than others. But there's rules as a natural result. So my thing is, if you're focusing on the idea of eternal punishment, I just think you're focusing on the wrong thing. That's not what Christianity is about. After all, the Bible's not about Jesus wanting to burn people for all eternity. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't even come to make bad people good. Christianity is about Jesus coming to make dead people live. But rules and consequences, they're an important part of making living in society possible. I mean, that's just obvious. You wouldn't want America to throw out all its rules. You wouldn't want that total anarchy. So why would that be any different on a cosmic scale? here in this universe where love and free will are real things. So I guess now we're sort of coming back full circle to that whole limits thing that I mentioned in the first half of the podcast. See, people like the idea of living an unlimited life. I don't. I like the idea of limits. But some people don't. They like the idea of having nobody tell them what to do or what not to do. But in reality, though, nobody lives unlimited like that. The universe has laws like the laws of physics that we all live by. Countries have laws, like the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Consumer Protection Act of 2005, as a random example. And that governs certain aspects of Americans' life. So as a Christian, I'm just like, well, I'm going to go by God's rules rather than my own, because the non-physical first cause of the universe must know a lot more about life and happiness than I do. My point is that it doesn't matter who you are. There are rules. There are limits that apply to you. Some rules you make for yourself. Some rules society makes for you. Some rules you can just choose to ignore, since you're not a mindless automaton. Some rules are natural. You could never break them even if you wanted to. So the idea of having rules and consequences, it's not a foreign idea to any of us. As a society, we like having rules, limits. And as part of that, we have consequences. Why would it be any different for God? So, no, I don't think it's ridiculous to abide by a certain set of rules. We all do it already. It's just a matter of what limits you accept and why. So I wish we could get into more, but at the end of the day, though, what's really clear to me is that whatever your worldview currently is or whatever worldview you want to explore, you're going to find people to co-sign with you and agree with you and back you up, as well as people who are going to tell you that they think you're wrong. Like, if you're inclined to be an atheist or an agnostic or a Buddhist or a New Ager or a Wiccan, whatever, 
you're going to find people ready to pat you on the back and tell you that you're headed in the right direction. So for me, I can't really go by that. Like, what are other people doing? Ah, I mean, I got to end this somewhere. But I just want you to know, though, it's not like I feel like I have all the answers to everything in life. This podcast episode isn't the equivalent of me telling you the answer to life is 42. Somebody out there gets a reference. Life is complicated, and nobody has all the answers. Scientists don't have all the answers. They can't tell you what energy is. They can tell you a lot about energy and its properties and how it behaves, but they don't actually know what energy is. It's the same with me. I don't have all the answers, but that hasn't stopped me from doing a lot of research and thinking. There's intellectual answers to all the big hard questions you could possibly ask about Christianity. If you can think it, trust me, it's been asked. But that's not to say that every answer that you would find is likable or easy to accept. Sometimes the answer I have to come up with is, I don't know. And I'll sit here and admit that to you. (laughs) Now, if you've listened this far, then it's obvious that you're also curious or maybe just bored. But either way, I just want to say thanks for listening because oftentimes people do a lot of talking and they don't do any listening. But if you've come this far, you gave me a seat at the table in the free marketplace of ideas. And I really, truly, sincerely appreciate that. Hopefully, this was at least entertaining for you, if nothing else. And maybe your mind got stretched a little bit if you encountered a few new ideas here or there. And hopefully we dispelled the myth that Christians can be just written off like Ned Flanders act-alikes. Now, there's definitely some Ned Flanders out there. I mean, I used to work with some Ned Flanders. But that's not the kind of Christians who I like to hang out with and surround myself with. Not these days. But like I said in the beginning, this has not been about trying to get you to think like me or be like me at all. But rather, I just want to have a conversation where people could see where I'm coming from and how I got here. Because, again, people ask me all the time, Chris, are you a Christian? What's your worldview? And now I got something I can refer them to. And I said it before, but I'll just say it again. Even if you and I do disagree on certain things, there's no reason to be disagreeable. Look, I'm not a stranger to the ideas of people like Nietzsche, Kant, Hume, Dennett, Hitchens, Harris. And I'm not a stranger to the ideas of people like the Dalai Lama, Confucius, Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra. If you're a fan of any of those people or any other prominent thinker, that doesn't mean we can't be friends or have a great discussion. (laughs) Like I said, as fellow humans, I hope that we can at least wind up in a place of unity, you and me, even if we don't end up in a place of uniformity. We're curious. Let's stay curious and hopefully humble because, indeed, this is an insanely fascinating and gigantically expansive universe. There's a lot to be curious about. All right, we're going to get back to the regular podcast next week, talking tech. So I'll look forward to hanging out with you guys again then. And don't forget, you can check out the podcast description for all the stuff that I've been talking about up to this point. And you know what? People have been asking me for a playlist of some of my favorite music for the longest time, and I finally made it. It's called Catch This Wave, and that's linked up down in the description too. So if you're wondering, what kind of music does Chris like to listen to or work to or what's motivating to him, you can check it out. And maybe let my final word here be this. As dark as the world around me seems or has actually been, and as dark as things might get, I do believe that there's an opposite and greater light that exists. That's the hope that I have. And now you know at least some of the reasons why. 
I'll catch you guys in the next video or podcast. Later. Welcome to the other party out of vibe. Well, you know we getting lit and come alive. And you know we got a light, so we gon' shine. And we talking to the fans, it's the time, yeah. Welcome to the other party out of vibe. Well, you know we getting lit and come alive. And you know we got a light, so we gon' shine. And we talking to the fans, it's the time, yeah. Since all 12 are giving you the heat, the reviews from Chris you gotta see. Daily tech got the facts that you need, and it's a whole crew you gotta meet. After party, it's the place you gotta be, and you can't really beat it cause it's free. Trying to give you unbiased critiques, quality you should take it from me. Cause we care about the customers, pull up a seat, got a whole team, giving you the best and do it by any means. Brand new Mac and know it's looking clean. It's the after party, live from the models. Wanna cop some, shouldn't be a doubt about it. Looking for great reviews, then you found it. Connecting with the fans, hope you get a lot out of it. Yeah. Welcome to the other party, out of vibe. Well, you know we get a little come alive. And you know we got a light, so we gon' shine. And we talking to the fans, it's the time, yeah. Welcome to the other party, out of vibe. Well, you know we get a little come alive. And you know we got a light, so we gon' shine. And we talking to the fans, it's the time, yeah.